Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. In this, our first year of 2022, a year that promises to be just as much of a mindfuck as 2021, we do have something to celebrate. Once again, we're reaching across the world and Yorkshire meets California as friend of the show Dave Washman, aka Sonus, has dropped his second album, Usurper of the Universe. Dave is hugely influenced by epic fantasy, psychedelic and space rock, and particularly Moorcock as well as other genre authors. His first cut, Worlds Undreamed Of, was an absolute banger, and Usurper of the Universe is a monster of a follow-up, so we decided to get back together in Derry and Tom's to talk about that, and while we're at it, cover a Moorcock tale too, and this one in particular has a connection with Dave's new album, so it was a perfect fit. As usual, we go off on a few tangents, naturally, but we get round to it eventually and make a few connections along the way. Tanalon, subject of song and story, is one of those Moorcockian names and concepts that originated almost at the very outset of Mike's work in the early 60s, and has since featured heavily in subsequent tales. Not only that, but it's been a marker of his long reach, appearing in songs by the likes of Blind Guardian, being the name of an actual hippie music festival in Australia in the early 80s, and appearing on the front of a bus in the Men and Work video for Land Down Under, and being adopted, for example, as the name of a Georgian death metal band from Tbilisi. In fact, go on Bandcamp and search Tanalon, or really any Moorcock keyword, and you'll see how far it's seeded. As we know, Moorcock's been shot through rock music since the 60s, but it's incredibly gratifying to see how many other artists of all stripes have threads of his influences running through their work. Not just our friends like Sonus, Gateless Gate, Imria, Decanids, and Nand, but multiple others of all modes and styles including folk, experimental, ethnic, stoner, 8-bit, synthwave, and more from all over the world. And as it happens, Robbo dropped me a line a few days ago to point out something he came across whilst he was reading about the band Joy Division, and in particular, Stephen Morris and Ian Curtis. And he sent me an extract from the book. There was a shop called The Shop on the Borderlands, after the William Hope Hodgson novel, and they had all this kind of stuff in the window. There was a strong emphasis on alternative culture and American imports. The windows looked very exotic, and this is what probably attracted Ian and Steve Morris inside, once they'd followed the Yellow Brick Road poster trail leading to the shop. The attitude radiating from the shop was, fuck everybody in authority, and that's what they responded to. The shop played loud rock and roll over the speakers, which sounded out into the street years before other shops were doing the same kind of thing. And I mean loud. They were disparate, alienated young men, attracted to like-minded souls. They wanted something offbeat and off the beaten track, and the shop supplied this. They probably saw the shop as being a beacon in the rather bleak Manchester of the early 70s. Ian was interested in counterculture and science fiction, David remembers them being enthusiasts about Michael Moorcock, whose hard-edged fancy writing and lifestyle were a great influence. Very rock and roll. Ian bought second-hand copies of New Worlds, the great 60s literary magazine edited by Moorcock, which was doing something very different, promoting Burroughs and Ballard, and it's possible Ian picked up his interest in these writers from these magazines. In exchange for their help in the shop, they were allowed to take whatever books took their fancy. It was very cool, the Joy Division link, which I was never aware of. And further, on the subject of books, on Twitter, at TransculturalCBT dropped me a line to say, I know a woman who was a fan of sci-fi and fantasy who was actually called Rose Beck. I met her at a conference ten years ago and totally weirded out at her name. Luckily, she got over it and we're still friends. She was an X-Files obsessive, so heard about the Stormbringer RPG through the book Agent of Chaos about Mulder's childhood as a Stormbringer player. Weird world. Well, thanks for that tweet, and as it happens, that book is called Agent of Chaos, and it's by Cami Garcia, 
and it may not surprise you to learn that I went straight online and found a copy, so that's going on the slate for a future show. Thanks for the tip, much appreciated. But today, we're talking Cernus, Usurper of the Universe, and the 1962 Mo cocktail to rescue Tanalon. So, hop in the elevator, head on up to the roof gardens for some vittles as we visit the Eternal City. All empires fall, all ages die, all strife shall be in vain, all kings go down, all hope must fail, but Tanalon remains. But anyway, we're in Derry and Tom's. <laughs> so we just had a slight, slight diversion talking about my Christmas gin. But we're back in Derry and Tom's and I'm back here with Dave, who uh, I think it was last summer, last time we hooked up on the podcast to talk about your first album. Yeah, how's it going? Oh, it's going good. Actually, I think we were just about talking about the second album back then, you know, mm. way back when I said, oh, it'll be out soon. <laughs> That's right. So we uh, we have something of a plan today, don't we? Number one, of course, to talk about your, what the music reviewers always call it, your sophomore release. My your... sophomore release. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I just seem to recall years ago reading, that, that was like a, a really lazy thing that music journalists used to use about artists' second albums, their sophomore release. So, oh, yes. Usurper of the Universe, your second Usurper release. Usurper of the Universe. Mm, That's it. So, fill, fill us in, because of course, actually, I, I better just set out our, our agenda here, is we're going to talk about Usurper of the Universe, but also, there's a track on there with a specific title that tipped us off as to what we could potentially talk about and actually make this a 50-50 music-stroke-regular episode of Breakfast in the Ruins and actually talk about a Mocock story as well. So tell That's us right. about the album and, uh, and the track in particular and the story we're going to talk about. But first of all, crack into the album and tell us where you are, what's been going on since last time we talked to you. Yeah, well, since last time I talked to you, yeah, I was basically uh, finishing up that album. And then, you know, mixing mastering took a while, but I really made sure in this one I got a mix that I was very happy with. Because uh, the first one, I, I mean, I'm happy with it, but it's a little thin. I think this one sounds really ballsy, <laughs> <laughs> I guess would be the right way to say it. Um, so yeah, it really, really took a lot of time to kind of get it right, make sure I was really happy with it. And then from there, it was just um, submitting it to a bunch of labels and more than that, waiting for responses. Mm. <laughs> That's what really took so long. Uh, I had a few people who were interested. They're like, oh, this is good. Yeah, this is good. Great. You want to work? Crickets mm. <laughs> for months. And then, oh, hey, could you send me something? Like three months later out of the blue, like, uh, okay. Uh, but yeah, anyway, so finally, um, I got on, uh, with, uh, Forbidden Place Records out of, uh, Colorado, cool little, uh, indie label on the scene there. They've released a bunch of bands I've, uh, heard about and stuff like that. So that tipped me off like, all right, well, yeah, let's give them a shot. And they've been pretty cool. So went with them and, uh, yeah, February 4th, it'll be out finally, Fantastic. finally. <laughs> Well, by yeah. the time this actually gets, by the time I've pulled my finger out and edited this, I reckon it will be out. So I think for, for the sake of uh, listeners, we could say out now. <laughs> out now. Sonusrocks.bandcamp.com. Absolutely. <laughs> there now, you go. You've, you've had a slightly different approach with this album, haven't you, as well? Because you've, we were chatting the other day and you were saying that you've effectively formed a power trio. Yeah. So sort of sort of working on it, right? Yeah. Um, with, with this album, I was really fortunate enough to be able to... Um, quarantine it just lifted enough 
to where we could actually kind of start going into people's houses here in California, mm. um, which was great because that meant that my friend Eddie, who's a phenomenal drummer, um, was able to record drum parts at my friend Tyler's uh, home studio. And obviously, you know, compared to me just programming little drums here and there on the first album, I mean, it's there's, there's really no comparison. It just fucking rocks. And I'm mm. really blown away by his performance. So... Yeah, I was able to get uh, my friend Eddie on my on the drums on the album, and actually my friend Tyler too. He does the drums on the instrumental track Amaranthine, just because he really dug it and was like, "I got a great idea." So I was like, "Yeah, go for it." But yeah, so it was great. You know, I mean, I, I've always really loved jamming with people and having that feel. And while I didn't exactly get that this time, <laughs> it was still mostly just me jamming with myself. Um, you know, it was great to have my friends involved, and um, music I think is best when it's a collaborative thing. So even to have just a bit of that on this was was really great. Um, yeah, because Wells and Dreamed of was was a lockdown project, effectively. Oh yeah, you, wasn't it? Hundred percent me, except for my girlfriend's vocals on the last song. Yeah. yeah, which by the way she returns again on the last song of this album, which is Tanalorn. Tanalorn. Oh yeah, and, and that's why we've decided that we are going to talk about the story. Shit, I forgot what it's called. To Rescue Tanalorn. <laughs> to Rescue Tanalorn. I was about to say To Save Tanalorn. I was going to say that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, We're, yeah. Fortunately, we, we pulled each other's asses out of the fire. Yes, To Rescue Tanalorn from 1962. 1962. Yeah, so Mocock was probably only about 22, 23 when he wrote it. But it so, what are the other like inspirations? on acid. It does. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> it's, um, it's a trip. Yeah. One, one of the notes I, I wrote quite early on, I said it's like a, in in many ways it it mirrors what he does a lot later on because it's basically like a quest travelogue, which oh, yeah. uh, a, a lot of his stories turn out to be later on, especially the Coram stories. The Coram oh, yeah. stories really are, much as I love them, they are basically like quest travelogues. And this is like a, almost a prototype Coram story in a way. It's a, it's a mini quest travelogue. But like the later Mocock stuff, it is an absolute psychedelic flavor bomb. Oh, yeah. <laughs> as it goes along. He's throwing in ideas for fun, and then a page later, he's moved on and just left them in the dust. And oh, there's yeah. so much good stuff in there. You know what? We'll get down to that. But in terms of uh, just going back briefly to Usurper of the Universe, what were the other inspirations then, and, and what, what's driven the ideas behind the other tracks on this? Gotcha. Trailer? Yeah. So I'd say, I guess, uh, Worlds Undreamed was almost more of a more kind of somber record. It was mm. kind of more of an introspective sort of record. This, this one is more of, I would probably say, an angry record. <laughs> you know what I mean? The uh, the stages of grief have turned to anger at the time I was uh, writing this and just, you know, just the endless cavalcade of bullshit going on mm -hmm. all over the world, especially my country at the time. I mean, mm -hmm. I wrote all this basically before the election. So there was just, you know, unparalleled amounts of insanity going on mm -hmm. in the country. Um, so that was a big inspiration. I, I'd say if there's like a through theme on the album, it's just the like destructive nature of ego, mm -hmm. um, charismatic leaders, stupidity. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, it's a lot of rallying against that kind of stuff, which you know, hot topics right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Uh, it, it also it it rings very true for for what's going on over here as well, because even more now than the last time we spoke, GB is becoming the biggest tin pot shithole. Um, I think I've ever known in my lifetime. Um, yeah. So, so I think that anger is shared 
by like-minded yeah. people on on both sides of the ocean. Um, yeah. So yeah, I can completely <laughs> identify with all that. Every, every day there's just something new to infuriate one. Uh, when you scroll doom scrolling, <laughs> yeah, doom scrolling through the news and on Twitter, it's a That's fucking it. nightmare. Doom scrolling so, and doom playing. Yeah, identifiable. I think. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Mm. So, yeah, but you mean kept yes, that... it... Sorry, go on. Oh, I was just gonna say, yeah. I mean, and, and getting back to that, I mean, yeah. There's even a there's even a song there, inspired by Dune, which is another big thing going on right now. It's come back in the public consciousness, which mm. you know Frank Herbert's whole thing was all about. Listen, religion, government, you know, charismatic leaders, all these things are gonna fuck you over, and this is my giant, you know psychotropic masterpiece about it so here you go so we didn't really get to that part in the movie but you know people are starting to see the beginning of that at least it's kind of coming mm. back in the public consciousness people are reading the book and stuff like that um my girlfriend's a massive massive fan of dune and i've just been subject to her rants and ravings about <laughs> oh, the nature of you know the, and i'm like oh wow okay yeah. <laughs> you know so a yeah. lot of that was kind of going on too during the writing of this album yeah, I'm probably trying to think. Dune came to me in from two directions, and I honestly wouldn't be able to put my finger on which one came first. But one was the um, the New English Library Children of Dune paperback with the uh, Bruce Pennington cover, that beautiful green oh. cover that was oh on my, my uncle. Uh, sorry, on um, on Pops's table next to his on Pops's little table next to his rocking chair. There'd be a book, yeah. an ashtray, and his pipe, and one day. That Children of Dune paperback was there, along with oh. The Broken Sword by Paul Anderson. A really, really lovely 70s paperback cover of that. And I, I remember being completely obsessed with it, because of course, you know, as a kid, looking at those covers in the late 70s, early 80s, they're just hypnotic, aren't they? They just pull you in straight away. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I was I was really enjoying that, and, and I ended that ended up coming to me eventually. But I never read it until quite a few years later. Possibly my first introduction to Dune in terms of having some kind of textual awareness of what it was about was to tame a land by iron maiden <laughs> <laughs> honestly yeah. that was mine too yeah <laughs> iron maiden uh, introduced me to quite a lot of uh, literature as it turns out yeah. it's a good band to get into in your teenage years that's for sure absolutely yeah. and uh <laughs> i wouldn't have known anything about the prisoner without iron maiden you know, i certainly wouldn't have been in america <laughs> no no all of a sudden i know about an obscure like british sci-fi tv show yeah, so absolutely. I'll get to see it. Yeah, I, I, I remember listening to The Prisoner and you get the intro from Patrick McGowan. I remember recognising his voice because he was on a TV show that was... The Prisoner never really seemed to be on TV much when I was a kid, but there was another one. I'm going to show myself up now by forgetting what it's called. Was it Danger Man? <laughs> might have been Danger Man. So there was a TV series. I think it's called Danger Man. Man. Mm. There, was, there were a few around about the same time. There was Man in the Suitcase. There was Danger Man. There was an Edward Woodward one called Callan. And they were all kind of pretty similar, different but similar in that they were about hard-bitten spies or former spies. And Danger Man was Patrick McGowan. And there were a lot of there were a lot of theories about the prisoner that actually the prisoner the prisoner is actually the Danger Man character from the previous series. But I think Patrick McGowan might have mm. actually crapped on that theory <laughs> in an interview Damn. in the nineties. So there was all, <laughs> all that kind of stuff was around. So I was aware of who Patrick McGowan was, but I suddenly became really really interested. It's like, what is this? What is this? You are number two. I am number one. You are number six, and all this business. Yeah. So I imagine a terrific introduction to all sorts of things. Oh yeah. So you and your girlfriend. What's the verdict on the Denny Villeneuve movie? 
I think I liked it maybe more than she did. Mm. Um, yeah, I thought it was awesome, the design, everything like that. They definitely cut out quite a few important bits mm. um, in the interest of time. Maybe one day, you know, they'll do a Lord of the Rings and release the extended cuts and the Super yeah. Spice Edition and the, you know, the Scary Spice Edition. You know, <laughs> we'll go through all the different Spice Girls editions because yeah. fuck it, we'll sell it to them again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. I, I yeah. was really, really hoping for that, but apparently Denny Villeneuve said in an interview there is the director's cut is what gets released and I never revisit my movies. So Yeah, well, he says that. We'll see if the studios say, right? Because they're the yeah. ones who really hold the strings and yeah, absolutely. control the spice, control the universe, don't they? Yeah, but, absolutely. But, you know, yep. yeah. I'd double dip. Of, I'd see uh, that. <laughs> alternative cuts with spice in the name. There is a, there's an alternative cut of the Lynch Dune called the Spice yeah. Diver edit. And yeah. um, I got my hands on that because I'd, I'd seen one a while back called The Whole Story or something, a fan edit. And it threw absolutely everything that exists in there, including all the shit stuff from the yeah. extended TV version, like the awful opening narration and, oh, and the really bad artwork and, and all yeah. that business. But the Spice Diver edit takes a much more um, considered approach to it and tries to keep it narratively satisfying and leave out stuff that was crap. And some of the <laughs> extra scenes, I thought, looked a little bit choppy visually. But actually, taking it up to around about three hours, it was such a much more complete experience i've seen it actually yeah mm. i really like it i think actually i might have um yeah I, I i i originally i originally watched with my dad like years ago like you know just the original cut but then in the past couple of years actually that's the one i think i've seen mm. and i i don't really get the hate for the david lynch one i think it's unfairly shat upon yeah but then again it could be colored because i've I've seen that version of it and it, yeah. it does make more sense and it is a lot more narratively satisfying and you get all the cool elements that were cut out. Um, yeah. And yeah, honestly, I think it's a totally admirable job. I mean, I love the design of that movie. It's just gorgeous to look at. I thought it was really well done and cool. It's absolutely beautiful. The cinematography is absolutely incredible. The matte paintings, the miniature effects. Oh yeah. Okay. Some of them look a bit shonky, like the some of the shots of the sandworms don't look great, but there are miniatures combined with map paintings, like uh, the landing field where you've got either the Atreides ships and and the Atreides family are coming down the steps, and or you've got the the one where the Harkonnen ships are there or Bar Gidi Prime. All of those miniatures combined with map paintings look absolutely incredible. Oh man, yeah, and really beautiful as well. Yeah, I love map paintings, practical effects, all that stuff. I mean, even when they're done. You know, maybe not as well as they could have been. I don't know. For me, there's just kind of a personal charm knowing that somebody actually like made that and it exists yeah. in like in space. Like that's a thing. I mean, you know, like, even like a shitty map page, Like I, I don't know. Like some some part of me will always take that over. Like you know, I mean, you even see like in the trailer for the Villeneuve version when he's in that battle suit and yeah, he's doing all these flips and rolls and he comes and the helmet goes up and then you see his face and it's like, well, that's obviously the CG thing. Shitty, it looks it? pretty <laughs> shitty. How did that make the final cut? They didn't improve that at all? What the I fuck were know. they thinking? I don't know. I, I, I was saying, all this, yeah. all this, these beautiful visuals and then something that just looked ugly. Yeah. It looked really ugly. Um, it stands out more. Yeah. But oh, man. I think that was probably the only thing in the film where I thought, ugh. Yeah, everything else looked terrific. Everything, oh, know, yeah. the the actual visual aesthetic is brilliant. Um, oh yeah. The, the, I had certain misgivings about it. I think they dumbed down the Baron too much, and I yeah. think he, he he lacked. You know, obviously he looked evil and villainous. Yeah. Um, but it, it, 
in the book, he's kind of a moustache twirling villain. He's got a character and a personality. You know, yeah. he's, he's an arsehole, but he's got more vibrancy to his yeah. to his character. And plus, he's a pedo. <laughs> yeah, and I can Full understand. Blown. I can understand why they left that out. But, I guess, <laughs> but, but reducing reducing you know in a PG thirteen film, but reducing him yeah. just to his evil trait is that he's fat and he's a glutton. Yeah, and nothing else. And nothing else. He's kind of an uh, asshole. Yeah, it's that weird spider thing. More. That's the best bit. That is the, the best. That bit. is the weirdest thing because that obviously that isn't in the thing, but it's like that. Like, did he turn Doctor Yui's wife into that? Does he just yeah. keep that around to like you know mess with? You know, yeah. is that what he's diddling on the side? This weird creepy fuck. Yeah, you don't know. That, that, that is that is the best thing about all the hacker and stuff, and I, I really liked um, Peter DeVries, but you didn't get enough of the Mentats. Oh and yeah, it's funny. I'm, I'm a massive fan of the Sci-Fi Channel TV series. Yeah, um, honestly, it was really cool. It's dated quite badly, special effect wise. Oh but, yeah. <laughs> but that said, I think there are a lot of really good performances in it, and I think one of the performances I love most of all about the June TV series is because the guy who plays Gurney Halleck is such a bad actor. I just <laughs> love it. I love his delivery. You, yeah. you young pup, mood is for cattle, not for fighting. I, it's just <laughs> fucking brilliant. I absolutely love it. And um, yeah. I can't remember the actor's name. And he played heavies in loads of films. He's in Outland. He's one of the villains oh, wow. at the end of Outland who come to get Sean Connery. Don't get any oh, laughs. Oh, shit. But he's after Sean Connery at the end of Outland. I got to rewatch that. It's been years. That's another good one. It's a great movie. Lo- loads of really oh, yeah. nice model work and matte paintings as well. Oh, so, yeah. Similarly. Um, and, and lots of, funnily enough, little connection, lots of um, British character actors in there, including a, a brilliant turn from Stephen Berkoff as a miner going nuts on a drug and threatening a <laughs> prostitute. Absolutely fantastic. And, weird link, Stephen Berkoff ends up getting cast as Stilgar in Children of Dune. Oh <laughs> so, shit! Dune connection. Well, Weird, there you man. go. Yeah, yeah. Because the guy who played Stilgar in the in the original TV miniseries, who I thought was brilliant, it was a Czech actor whose name escapes me, but he couldn't come back for the second one. So the cast Stephen Berkoff, who just oh. chews scenery and gotta and love it. He delivers a line. It's another example of a British actor delivering a line. But but in, instead of with Gurney, where you just know that he's he's not that great an actor, but he gives it everything he's got. Stephen Berkoff has a line he has where he says. Send men into the desert to summon worms. And it's, worms. It, it is the most metal delivery. <laughs> it is absolutely superb. And, uh, and Stephen Berkoff is just like uh, uh, such an odd actor. And he's, but he's been around for years. He's been in Deep Space Nine. He's been in independent movies. He's done yep. one-man shows. He's just uh, a force unto himself. Yeah, That's amazing. Great stuff. So yeah, I really like the original TV miniseries, and yeah. I thought it, it had a lot of stuff in it, like the um, the banquet scene, which I think is a really important scene. Oh yeah, doesn't really. It's not really like it is in the book, but it establishes the fact that Arakeen is a living place full of smugglers and merchants and movers yeah. and shakers. You don't and get that at all in the Villeneuve version. You get like you the get one scene. They're outside. This is like a special tree. Yeah. All right. But that's it. Yeah. The rest of it's just like, boom, we have like some spaceship looking design. Like you don't see any like roads or any people, no, no commerce going on. It just looks like a like a military fortress or like some, you know, yeah. it could be like a spaceship basically on the desert. So yeah. You really don't get a sense of like the actual culture or anything like that. I mean, obviously in part two, we'll see, you know, the sieges and stuff like that, I mm. guess. But yeah, you don't really get anything, any sort of glimpse into uh, the Fremen lifestyle or anything like that, really. No, you, you don't get the sense one. that it's a living place. Yeah. At all, which is a shame. 
But it's a shame. I suppose we have to take the rough with a smooth, um, and and there's plenty of smooth to be had with. That's it. true. Very slick the, movie. Yeah, and I, I never could have imagined a, a better translation of things like Ornithopters. Oh, it's it perfect. All, all the technical so cool. stuff is fantastic. Oh yeah. And whilst I don't think the Sada car looked right, they looked too contemporary when they were out in their combat gear. The scene on the Sardaukar planet with the like Mongolian throat singing and the blood sacrifices was yeah. all fantastic. So, yeah, lots and <laughs> lots to love. Cool. Just mild disappointment at certain yeah. things that it didn't have. But, yeah. you know, good stuff. Anyway, yeah. we've kind of gone a little bit off on a tangent there, haven't we? <laughs> Talking about Dune. But, you know, that's not a problem. Tangents are part of this show, so it's all good. That's but, right. So the album's out. Well, it's out on the 4th, but it'll be out yeah. by the time this, this show actually goes <laughs> out, so that's fine. The album's out. Where can people get it? They can get it at sonusrocks.bandcamp.com uh, and as well as forbiddenplacerecords.bandcamp.com. Uh, then they also have a website and stuff. But yeah, then for there, they'll be starting the pre-order for the CDs and cassettes editions. Uh, words out on vinyl, we'll see. Maybe one day. <laughs> that would be nice. Uh, T-shirts will be coming soon, stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, you can listen to four uh, – oh, well, by the time this is out, you'll be able to just get the whole album yeah. digitally, uh, sonusrocks.bandcamp.com, for a measly six bucks. <laughs> a bargain. There you go. A, a bargain. bargain. Yeah. One of the things I really love about Bandcamp is is how cassettes are coming back. And um, yeah. you'll, you'll see behind me I've got – uh, one, two, three, six, six cassettes here, all of all of which have come from Bandcamp. Oh wow! Um, mostly dungeon synth. Well, there you go. You'll get some space rock pretty soon because I literally just uh, just the other day emailed in the uh, cassette templates I designed for it. Yeah, so fantastic. Yeah. But the stupid the stupid <laughs> thing is I don't own a cassette player. I don't but, either, but, but I, got I couldn't to resist. Now. I couldn't yeah. resist just for the retro. The, it's just kind of cool looking. Yeah, maybe that. maybe at some point I'll 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 go on eBay and get some really old crappy eighties Bush. Yeah, there <laughs> Bush, you go. Bush cassette player that I can stick some headphones into. Yeah. For two hundred dollars now. Yeah, <laughs> now two, they're coming two, back. Two hundred dollars <laughs> and it will chew up the first dungeon synth tape. Oh yeah. It. <laughs> Spit it right out. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Oh, yeah. So I probably won't. Maybe. I'll think about it. But anyway. <laughs> so the album's out, it can be got, there's physical media. And actually we're, we're going to play the show out with Tanalon. Stick nice. around, so people can folks. get a taste. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But we're going to talk about To Rescue Tanalon. Let's get into uh, Breakfast in the Ruins duty. So the copy I've got here is um, 1970 Mayflower edition with the crazy Bob Haberfield cover. Nice. and so I tracked this down. However, I did not read it in this amazing edition because I completely forgot that it was in there. I instead read it in the Elric Chronicles of the Last Emperor Melanibony Volume 2 Valentine Books Del Rey edition. Very nice. Which, it seems like there are some minor differences in the text that I've noticed ah, already. Yeah, I've spotted mm. that because I thought this might happen. Mm-hmm. So I, I pulled off the... Pulled it off. I oh. pulled pulled down the Golanx edition from a few years ago, and To Rescue Tanalon is in the Elric Revenge of the Rose volume with a few other bits and bobs. And yes, gotcha. there are some differences. Moorcock and his revisions, eh? For real? Yeah, we can take a look at some of those as we go along. Wow. And it's also in the Panther, I think it's in the Panther Bane of the Black Sword 
edition from the 1980s, but I thought, don't go down a rabbit hole of reading 17 different versions. <laughs> read the, re- I'll read the oldest one I've got, and I'll read the newest one I've got. There you so, go. <laughs> but this, uh, this Bob Herberfield cover, I've got to say, whatever giant purple head dude has taken, 19-year-old me wants some. Yeah, for real. That is just an absolutely amazing cover. I I just go nuts for these Bob Haverfield ones. You know, um, back when I was making the first album, I actually I really looked into seeing if I could get like the license to use actually this cover for it. Mm. I couldn't find anything. I looked again for Usurper because I wanted to use his cover for Night of the Swords because I just thought that'd be perfectly fitting for you know yeah. the title, the theme. Nothing. I found out uh, mm. sadly that he passed in 2021. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if he has an estate or anybody looking after his body of work or if mm. they're going to be doing anything to sort of keep his artwork in rotation. And I hope at some point, you know, his family or whoever does, because what a shame it would be to kind of let this amazing art kind of fall into obscurity. I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's absolutely. absolutely amazing. After he died, I looked him up and, and actually we do have some listeners in Australia. So if anybody in Australia has got any tips as to who has the rights to the Bob Haberfield portfolio, drop us a line and let us know. But I looked into it. I seem to recall he was active from 68 to 88 and then just kind of vanished off the scene. But I do mm-hmm. wonder with these old covers, because of course he's not credited for any of the Mayflower covers that he did from from memory. Certainly not credited on this one. And yeah. I do wonder whether these were these were just pieces of work that were just bought and whoever now owns the rights to whatever Mayflower had that wasn't that contents of the book, maybe it's with them. It's just hard to tell, isn't it? It's really hard yeah. to tell because the the art and paperback cover situation and I was talking to Andrew Nett about this on one of our more recent episodes. Is very strange and, and a lot of these artists produced cover work and then it was end up being used by publishers in all sorts of different countries you know oh, I've, wow. I've got and, and different books different publishers as well so the bruce pennington cover for dune done for the dune, new english library edition of dune i've got exactly the same painting on the three stigmata of palmer eldritch by philip k dick and oh, i'm pretty wow. sure that was a separate publisher i don't think that was new english library it's so, totally yeah. recycled huh Interesting. Yeah, very odd. Um, here he is. I've got it on the shelf here. Let's see what the publisher was. Bruce Pennington was another artist I looked into uh, trying to get the licensing for because, oh, yeah, look at that. That's amazing. Yeah. And th- so this publisher is Mana Books. Mana Books, huh? Mana Books, yeah. So very, very odd. So unless Mana Books were, you know, owned by the same overall publishing house and, and they were just separate divisions. Hmm. Yeah, there you go. Exactly the same artwork. There you have it. Mm. The art's so nice they used it twice. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, um, but it is a a conundrum, that one. And maybe someone could solve it for us. That'd be nice. Yeah, please. If Mm. you know the license holders of uh, Bruce Pennington or Bob Everfield, please write to Breakfast in the Ruins. Mm. (laughs) Outlook.com. Breakfast Ruins at Outlook.com. Send us everything you've got. There you go. Uh, Yeah. So anyway, it's it's the fourth story in the edition that we're working to, which also has The Greater Conqueror, which is the Alexander the Great story, The Singing Citadel, the only only actual dedicated Elric story in this volume, Master of Chaos, which I think was also relabeled over the years as just Earl Arbeck. I think so. Yeah. And, of course, to rescue Tanelon, not to save Tanelon, to rescue Tanelon. That's right. 
let's just kick off with a little bit of a, a read which sets the scene because it's, it's a really interesting story this rereading it again after all this time because there are all sorts of link linkages in it which when he wrote it he exploited later on and yeah. uh, and, and makes it part of a much greater tapestry I've definitely taken note of a few of those, especially having just literally just finished the uh, all the quorum stories uh, about a month ah. or so ago. Ah. Okay, I'm sure we'll, uh, talk we'll get about to that. that. There was there's one reference I dimly remember being cropping up in a quorum book, but let's let's see what what we've got. So I'm just going to read the the intro. So um, let's go. Beyond the tall and ominous glass green forest of Trues, well to the north and unheard of in Bakshan, Elwer. Or any other city of the young kingdoms, on the shifting shores of the sighing desert, lay Tanalon, a lonely, long ago city loved by those it sheltered. I love that. A lonely, long ago city. What a strange way of phrasing it, but how how, how kind of wonderfully evocative that is. Yeah. Anyway, I've gone off my reading already, so I'll carry on. Tanalon had a peculiar nature in that it welcomed and held the wanderer. To its peaceful streets and low houses came the gaunt, the savage, the brutalised, the tormented, and in Tanalon they found rest. Now, most of those troubled travellers who dwelt in peaceful Tanalon had thrown off earlier allegiances to the Lords of Chaos, who, as gods, took more than a mild interest in the affairs of men. It happened, therefore, that these same Lords grew to resent the unlikely city of Tanalon, and, at length, decided to act. They instructed one of their number. More they could not send. Lord Narjan, to journey to Nadsokor, the city of beggars, and raise an army that would attack undefended Tanalon and destroy it and its inhabitants. So he did this, arming his ragged army and promising them many things. Then, like a ferocious tide, did the beggar rabble set off to tear down Tanalon and slay its residents. A great torrent of men and women in rags, on crutches, blind, maimed, but moving steadily, ominously, implacably northwards, towards the Sighing Desert. So... That kind of sets the scene. Straight off, we know what's going on. Tanalon's in a bit of bother. A lord of chaos is getting a lord of... Um, how would you describe the residents of Nadsokor? Well, I mean, I think uh, a beggar rabble pretty yeah. much says it all, right? It's yeah, just so, a bunch of, yeah, poor people so in rags just marching through the desert. Diseased amputees, yeah. people on crutches. I mean, I, th I think from, from a modern perspective, it's probably raise an eyebrow. It's not entirely PC. Um, but nope. <laughs> this is, yeah, this, this is, uh, you know, kind of fancy of, of 60 odd years ago. But so this, it's funny. I was reading this and I was thinking, right, okay. So you've got this Lord of Chaos or a Chaos Champion or whatever it is. And as we find when we go into it, we find about, about a few of the vagaries of law and chaos and references to other bits and pieces which we'll pick up. But th this feels to me a, a Chaos Lord or Champion leading an army of diseased, fucked-up weirdos Yeah, is pretty much 90% of the basis for all of the villains in Warhammer and Warhammer 40,000. And that Basically. kind of setting. Yeah, it's, it's been so ripped <laughs> off and so exploited, it's ridiculous. And there it is in 1962 when Mocock's like 22 or something. Yeah. Just, it just right. struck me straight away. But of course, the first thing we get now is the introduction to Rakia the Red Archer, which is chronologically, in terms of when they were written, the introduction of Rakia the Red Archer. This is where you start to tangle yourself in knots with Mocock chronology. Oh, because boy, of here course, it comes. Yeah, because of narrative <laughs> chronology yeah. is in the very first Elric story, Elric of yeah. Melibonet. And we meet Brute of Lashmar, 
as well, who, in narrative chronology, is in Sailor and the Seas of Fate, which takes place before this. In, is in, I think he's in at least two of those stories, certainly in Sailing to the Future. Yeah. So you've, you've got these... Tanalon, unfortunately for Chaos Lord and his minions, is protected because Tanalon is populated by warriors who've been all across the multiverse fighting for different causes and have found Tanalon and made it their home. And we find that there is Zas the One-Handed and there is Urok of Nieva. No idea if I pronounced that correctly, but what would it be if we didn't have a pronunciation challenge? That's more, right. More of them to come when, when we get oh, to the yeah. flying ships later on. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it, we've got this introduction to these characters who end up being quite, not passing, certainly not passing characters, but quite important characters further down the line because, of course, we know if we've read lots and lots of Mocock that actually Tanalon is a really, really important gaff. Oh, yeah. Um, and actually, when, when Moorcock first tries to tie everything up in a neat boat, it's in a book called The Quest for Tanalon. Yep. Yeah. Very interesting introduction. And, of course, we also find out that Elric's not actually in this. Nope. This, this is set in, in Elric's world. It's set in the Young Kingdoms. It's set in the same timeline of Elric when he's out and about. But Elric's not actually in it, although he is referred to. And we'll Indeed, get to that yeah. Because that's one of the things that's different in these two editions. Oh, okay. Ah, Interesting. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. So we get a really nice description of uh, of Rakir, though. It says, um, In Tanalon dwelt the Red Archer, Rakir, from the Eastlands beyond the Sighing Desert, beyond the Weeping Waste. Rakir had been born a warrior priest, a servant of the Lords of Chaos, but had forsaken this life for the quieter pursuits of thievery and learning. A man with harsh features slashed from the bone of his skull, strong, fleshless nose, deep eye cavities, a thin mouth, and a thin beard. He wore a red skull cap, decorated with a hawk's feather, a red jerkin, tight-fitting and belted at the waist, red breeks, and red boots. It was as if all the blood in him had transferred itself to his gear and left him drained. He was happy, however, in Tanalon, the city which made all such men happy, and felt he would die there if men died there. He did not know if they did. Subtle now, fella. I, yeah, I, I find Rakia <laughs> really relatable. Because if I was going to give up my day job as a civil servant for the Lords of Chaos, who run yeah. the UK government, I actually think that <laughs> taking up a, quite a pursuits of thievery and learning, <laughs> I'd be quite up for that. That'd be all what right. What am I going to do today? Yeah, I'll think I'll read a book, uh, hmm. pop over to a jewellery shop, and, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> steal myself yeah. a nice lunch. Yeah, you know, absolutely. thievery and learning. What are you going to do? Yeah, I'd be up for that. I think that sounds. Yeah. I think that sounds really, really peaceful. Although, I mean, you know, if it's thieving in Tanalon, I'm not sure the people of Tanalon would think the same thing. If it's nicking bread from their stalls all the time, but anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll let that pass because it's oh, wreck here, yeah, you, you pesky, pesky thief. Yeah. So, so they know that there's this um, this huge army of beggars led by Narjan is headed for Tanalon. Brute and Zas and Rakia and Urok, they need some kind of assistance because they reckon that they could take an army of beggars. But an army of beggars led by a chaos lord, they're not entirely sure about. So they decide that they should try and get the help of the Grey Lords. So they've got to find the Grey Lords, but, you know, how do they find the Grey Lords? And what I really, really like about this is that we've kind of touched on how Warhammer ripped off all of this stuff. But it's not just Warhammer. I think Moorcock's ideas of law and chaos have been really shallowly interpreted. For law is good, chaos is evil balances neutrality yeah 
And straight away in 1962, he's writing this story. And when we get into this, because they've got to find five gates, as we yep. find out, and go through five gates. So they've got to go to four, four other realms. And we found that it's, it's not it's just not as simple as that. No, he really I, goes into a cool way of basically demonstrating the, the totality of both uh, ends of that spectrum. And yeah, really interesting ways. And I can't wait till we get to them because mm. it's so cool. Yeah. So Rakia thinks he knows how to get an audience with the Grey Lords. So he leaves Brute and Zass and Urok to lead the defence or setting up the defences of Tanalon. He sods off into the desert, into the hills, shouts someone's name, and this guy says, I'm over here. <laughs> It's all pretty convenient. And, yeah. uh, but it's a, a hermit called Lamsar. And Lamsar says, yeah, well, the, the only way to get to them, we've got to go through five gates. And Rekha says, well, what, what are these five gates? He says, well, the five gates and only one of them is on this earth, so we're going to have to go through these different realms. So Rekha says, oh, that's, oh, God. It could be anywhere on this earth. And Lamsar says, oh, well, just, just give me a minute. Meditates for seven hours, and then the gate pops outside. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lamsar. That's really fucking handy. Really convenient, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I um, like the line where it says, like, Rakir's disappointed that it wasn't some gaudy sorcerer. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> He's just that's... sitting there waiting on this guy. He's just sitting there meditating, probably going, oh, for hours. Yeah. He's just like, God, get on with it. Yeah, he just he just sits and chants to himself a little bit. It's lovely. Yep. And uh, Raki is like, oh, if it works, it works. And uh, off they go through the first gate. And I, I must admit that it's such a long time since I've read this and I couldn't remember anything about these realms that they go through. I remember the start and the finish. And yeah. that's about it. Couldn't remember any of the stuff in the middle. And the first realm they go to, which is basically the plane of dance-offs. <laughs> this is like the crazy... Do you think... I'm, I, Michael Morcock must have just not been a nightclub guy. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because, no. yeah, this this uh, this scene is pretty ridiculous and hilarious, I think. Yeah, so it's, it's, the, the end of this place, it's like, oh, there's a lot of villages down there. They're kind of strangely laid out. Oh, yeah, but before we get to that, there is... There is a, a really amusing part where he starts to meditate and uh, he says, it says, several hours went by until Lamsar said, the gate is outside. Memorise the following. If X is equal to the spirit of humanity, then the combination of the two must be of double power. Therefore, the spirit of humanity always contains the power to dominate itself. A, a strange, strange equation, equation. <laughs> said Rocky. <laughs> That's true. Um, Almost forgot about this super important equation, which never gets brought up again in yeah. the rest of the story. But yeah, yeah, isn't that a strange thing? Never again. Think about math. Maybe, maybe Lamsar just wanted Rack here to like zone out and just hey, think about this while I, you know, do my meditation, open this gate, and Rack here is just sitting there going like, "What the fuck does this mean?" Yeah, I'm a I've, warrior I've, for God's sake. I didn't take arithmetic. <laughs> yeah, I have a suspicion that actually the gate was outside all the time. Lamsar's just laying it on thick to make himself look a bit better, especially with all that math, especially with all that equation bullshit. There you go. Yeah. So they end up in this place, and there are these villages down below them. This is what it say. They went out of the cave mouth, but instead of the sighing desert, there was a hazy cloud of blue shimmering light ahead. And when they had passed through this, in a second, they found themselves in the foothills of a low mountain range, and below them, in a valley, were villages. The villages were strangely laid out, all the houses in a wide circle about a huge amphitheatre containing, at its centre, a circular dais. It will be interesting to learn the reason why these villages are so laid out, Lamsar said, and they began to move down into the valley. As they reached the bottom and came close to one of the villages, 
People came gaily out and danced joyfully towards them. They stopped in front of Rakir and Lamsar and jumping from foot to foot as he greeted them, the leader spoke. You are strangers, we can tell, and you're welcome to all we have, food, accommodation and entertainment. The two men thanked them graciously and accompanied them back to the circular village. The amphitheatre was made of mud and seemed to have been stamped out, hollowed into, the ground encompassed by houses. The leader of the villagers took them to his house and offered them food. You've come to us at a rest time, he said, but do not worry, things will soon commence again. My name is Yelaroo. <laughs> we seek the next gate, Lamsar said politely, and our mission is urgent. You will forgive us if we do not stay long. Come, said Yelaroo, things are about to commence. You will see us at our best and must join us. And essentially, at their best means that they all get together in the amphitheatre and dance. Yes. But they're kind of split into two lots of people. Yes, interesting. Described enough. as the the um, the fair light folks who were high as kites and dancing like Billy and some darker, more sombre people who were kind of stood around but reluctantly danced with yeah. miserable looks on the faces, <laughs> just frowning like, "Oh my God, will these yeah. white people stop?" Yeah, yeah just aggressively happy dancing. Yeah, terrifying, so it, truly visually. Yeah, it, it all feels like some kind of weird cult. Yeah. But we never really find out what that's all about, because no. we move on so quickly. <laughs> so Rakir's not at all impressed by any of this. He says, sensing something ominous in what he saw, Rakir asked the question directly. Where's the next gate? Yelaru hesitated, his mouth wet, and then he smiled. Where the winds meet? Rakir declared angrily, that's no answer. Yes, it is, said Lamsar softly behind him. A fair answer. Now we shall dance, Yelaru said. First you shall watch our dance, and then you shall join in. Dance, said Rakir, wishing he'd brought a sword, or at least a dagger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it seems like Lamsar has, has kind of realised that there's something a little bit weird going on here. And he's basically tugging at Rakir's shirt, said, just just humour them, yep. let's get the fuck out of here, and find <laughs> where the winds meet. Yeah. And Yelaru is uh, getting more and more frenetic in, in this dance. And he's like, come and join us. And basically... The dancing becomes so menacing that Lasmar casts a spell and turns them to stone so they can yeah. escape. So it turns out Lansar has got some power after all. He's, oh, not, yeah. he's not just some weird hipster pretend mathematician. He actually turns most of them to stone. And off they go. Turns them all to basalt. And Lasmar says, Lamsar, God. Lamsar <laughs> says, it was for their own good. Come to the place where the winds meet. And he took Rukia there quite swiftly. That's right. Realm 1. Done. Done and dusted in two pages. Two pages. Over a load, with. <laughs> a load of oddball dancers with their captives who dance sullenly because they don't really want yeah. it, but they're kind of stuck with it. And that's it. Boom. They're gone. It's like two pages and done. Move on. Yep. It's it's classic, typical Moorcock economy of language that he conjures up something quite sinister and threatening through really mundane language and just a bunch of weird hippies dancing in an amphitheatre. Let me tell you, I, I feel I feel that fear, that terror, because I am not a dancer. And every time, you know, <laughs> oh, come dance. No, leave me be. I'm going to yeah. sit here and brood and be miserable. <laughs> you can go off and dance. Yeah. I, I would have been one of the one of the dark people standing at the edge looking somber. Just going, Definitely. oh, God. I would yeah. have been there wishing I had a sword or a dagger, too. Like, oh, this goddamn, get the hell out of my face. <laughs> mm. Yeah, so very identifiable. Yeah. So they, they end up going through that next portal, the next gate. And it says, uh, 
At the place where the winds met, they found the second gateway, a column of amber-coloured flame shot through with streaks of green. They entered it and instantly were in a world of dark seething colour. Above them was a sky of murky red, in which other colours shifted, agitated, changing. Ahead of them lay a forest, dark, blue, black, heavy, mottled green, the tops of its trees moving like a wild tide. It was a howling land of unnatural phenomena. Lamsar pursed his lips. On this plane, chaos rules. We must get to the next gate swiftly, for obviously the Lords of Chaos will seek to stop us. Now, I've got to say, the Lords of Chaos don't try that hard. No. <laughs> so, they come across this ocean, and they're like, mm, the ocean smells of death, they're not impressed with it, it seems to have no end. So they decide to walk up the alien shore, and again, there's some nice language here. In the bleak brightness of the alien shore, under a sun which gave no heat, their bodies shone like stars in the night, and they turned towards the forest, quietly. And Rakia wonders if they're actually trapped in this realm of chaos. But it says, Then there emerged from the huge forest a great figure, naked and gnarled like the trunk of a tree, green as lime, but the face was jovial. Greetings, unhappy renegades, it said. Where is the next gate, said Lamsar quickly. You almost entered it, but turned away, laughed the giant. That sea does not exist. It's there to stop travellers from passing through the gate. So this this massive chaos giant doesn't do a particularly good job of stopping them because he tells them where the gate actually is when they've just walked past it and he could have got away with saying now, frankly. But Lamsar once again shows his value, charms an arrow, tells Rakir to shoot him, he shoots him, and then they run away. <laughs> again. Yep. That's it, through <laughs> so, the sea. Yeah, so there's something of a theme there. They get there, oh, yeah. say, where's the gate? Something sinister tells them, they go, thanks very much. Run away! <laughs> I do like run. this, uh, the description of this realm, though. The language is really cool. The whole thing just makes you feel like you've just stepped into, like, a bad mushroom trip. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. but they look actually, back, they think feels the sea's like, chasing them. Yeah, you could, crazy. you could be in the corner of a Bob Haverfield painting. Yeah. Stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, he on... High on Hearn, he on Hearn, the giant, doesn't chase him. So this, this charm of justice which Lamsar applied to Rakir's arrow. Rakir says, but why did he, hey on Hearn, how the fuck would you pronounce that? I, I pronounced it high on Hearn. High on Hearn, that'll do. Just try to simplify it. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a tongue twister there. Who the hell knows? Yeah, it's not the worst one. That's yet no. to come. Oh, yeah. But, but why did it hurt Hion Hearn? Hear her here. Hion Hearn, an immortal, Rakir asked. There is no justice in the world of chaos. Something constant and inflexible, whatever its nature, must harm any servant of the Lords of Chaos. We have passed through the third gate, Rakir said, unstringing his bow, and have the fourth and fifth to find. Two dangers have been avoided. What new ones will we encounter now? Who knows? said Lamsar. And... Now they come across, again, there's some really, really nice language, and they come across a, a huge domed building. And they, they have this sense that it feels a little bit like a very, very intense version of Tanalon. Mm-hmm. Very peaceful. This stuff is just thrown away by Mokok. It's oh, just yeah. thrown away. They climbed the steps and found themselves in a smaller hall similar to the one beneath them. This hall, however, was furnished with 12 wide thrones placed in a semicircle in the centre. Against the wall, near the door, were several chairs upholstered in purple fabric. The thrones were of gold, decorated with fine silver, padded with white cloth. A door behind the throne opened and a tall, fragile-looking man appeared, followed by others whose faces were almost identical. Only their robes were noticeably different. Their faces were pale, almost white, their noses straight, their lips thin but not cruel. Their eyes were unhuman, 
green-flecked eyes which stared outwards with sad composure. The leader of the tall men looked at Rakir and Lamsar. He nodded, and waved a pale, long-fingered hand gracefully. "'Welcome,' he said. His voice was high and frail, like a girl's, but beautiful in its modulation. The other eleven men seated themselves in the thrones, but the first man who had spoken remained standing. "'Sit down, please.' Rakir and Lamsar sat down on the two of the purple chairs. "'How did you come here?' inquired the man. "'Through the gates from chaos,' Lamsar replied. "'And were you seeking our world?' "'No, we travel towards the domain of the Grey Lords.' "'I thought so, for your people rarely visit us, save by accident.' "'I really love that, because it, it gives you this sense that these guys are... "'They're just in this place, this peaceful place. "'It's so peaceful they don't get visitors, nobody turns up, "'they're just in their own space, and it's 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 both peaceful but also melancholy and lonely.' Yeah, and it gives and it gives you a real sense, and, and I think it's, it's expanded a little bit later when they meet the Grey Lords that actually peace and restfulness actually goes hand in hand with melancholy and loneliness. And this this is just kind of reading between the lines. It's, it doesn't say it, but this is the sense I get from some of these passages. You can say a lot without having to just you know word salad puke out a bunch of whole things. He just he mm. gets it across very you know concisely. And, uh, yeah, I think you're totally right there. And I mean, as we will find out, these guys maybe not the best company. <laughs> no, certainly not. A little bit later, Rakia kind of quizzes them a little bit. He says, what is your function? And the man says, to function. Rakia says, you are unhuman. And he says, we are human. You spend your lives chasing that which is within you and that which you can find in any other human being, but you'll not look for it here. You must follow more glamorous paths to waste your time in order to discover that you have wasted your time. <laughs> I'm glad that we are no longer like you, but I wish that it were lawful to help you further. This, however, we may not do. Ours is no meaningless quest, said Lamsar quietly, with respect. We go to rescue Tanalon. Tanalon, the man said softly. Does Tanalon still remain? Aye, said Rakia, and shelters tired men who are grateful for the rest she offers. Now we realise why the building had been familiar. It had the same quality, but intensified, as Tanalon. So it turns out Tanalon was the last of their cities. Whilst they won't help, they will, indeed, show them to the next gate, and they give them food. Uh, uh, some more brilliant description here. The two travellers were given food, both soft and brittle, sweet and sour, and drink which seemed to enter the pores of their skin as they quaffed it. That's just wow. fucking ace. I love it. I love it's it. wonderful. It's so descriptive. Yeah, you really get this. You almost feel like you're there. And uh, what a what a what a nice deep you know one paragraph sums up like the whole of human life. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely yeah. superb. They said so these folks, interestingly enough, um, having just read uh, finished the Quorum series, it reminds me of in the final book um, where he meets the Malaban, who it's implied. Ah might be ancient Melnibonean sorcerers right, trapped okay. in these bodies. Because it says that, um, you know, basically these, these folks that they meet here, they're very tall, pale, long-fingered. Um, they're sort of immortal. They're trapped, they're trapped in their bodies, but they're not, like, um, attached to them. Yeah. You know? So that reminds me an awful lot of, sorry to spoil an aspect of a quorum for people, but it uh, reminds me of when he meets Sactric and Terhali, mm. which of course 
going back to Elric's father, Sadric, sounds very similar, right? Yeah. So they're basically in Corum. They're these ancient consciousnesses in like this desiccated, crumbling bodies in this sort of carved out section of a place outside of time and space. So it yeah. basically, I mean, much like this place and much like Tanlorn itself, it kind of it seems to exist within all the different realities and planes of the multiverse. So I'm wondering if Corum uh, eventually runs into these exact same people here. And we get a little teaser to that, mm. which um, leads me to a, uh, a larger question about Moorcock's multiverse um, as a whole. Is it more that these are kind of parallel realities of the multiverse, entirely separate in individual universes, or are they fragments of time coexisting on the same world or similar worlds? Like, you know, people, it, it's sort of implied maybe that Quorum's world and cycle kind of happened maybe before Elric's did. Yeah. Um, but what about Ericosi and the Eldrin? Hawkmoon, is that later? Like, you know, like, are they... Basically, in the same time, it's it's hard even just to ask the question because it's mm. all this timey-wimey gobbledygook. But, you know, yeah. is it different universes? Is it the similar universe? Is it multiverse more times coexisting mm. at the same time but different times? Or are they totally different universes, all self-contained, kind of existing around each other? Or is it some weird mix of both, I guess? If I was able to explain that... <laughs> <laughs> in any sort of um, coherent way. Totally see where you're coming from. And I think every decade, there's probably a different answer. Every decade of Mocock's writing, there's an ever so slightly different answer to that. Yeah. I think his really early stuff, there's definitely a suggestion, or it could be read that actually El Arbeck of Malador creates the Young Kingdoms. Elric Blows the Horn of Fate creates our world. And when you get the first instance of the novel The Eternal Champion with Erikos, that opening paragraph about his memories of, of other beings has changed so many times. But originally, it was talking about Alexander, and it was talking about um, different potentially historical characters that mm. Elric was kind of part of. Eric and Erikos were a part of like a, a chain. I think once you get to the 70s, you're definitely getting into that point where there is a suggestion that actually, especially with things like uh, Dances at the End of Time, that there is like a time equation involved in it all. But in actual fact, there's starting to get the suggestions of alternate worlds through the Bastable novels, and actually kind of like in classic terms, alternate dimensions. Because in the Bastable books, it's different versions of the 20th century in all three gotcha. books with different versions of conflict. And you get additional complications because you get Corum popping up in the grand mashup team-ups that happen in the Elric books. And also you get it from Hawkman's perspective and I think Quest for Tanalon. Yeah. The, where Erikos, Corum, Elric and Hawkmoon all come together. And the Corum that exists in that is a Corum, not necessarily the Corum. I was going to say, because you never get his perspective. You never get yeah. his perspective on that. And, well, I have a theory, but I won't spoil the end of, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> the quorum yeah. cycle. Yeah. But, yeah. But then you get into the 80s, and you get stuff like the dragon and the sword, where you you get a lot more kind of talk about uh, the conjunction of the million spheres, actually something that's quite 
ordered and can be predicted and projected in some ways, less less chaotic. And then, of course, once you get into the 90s, you've got the grey fees and chaos engineers and and God knows what. So so wherever Mococke's brain is, probably changes more frequently than this, but every decade of his output, so you've got like the Golden Age, 60s stuff, Silver Age, Bronze Age, whatever you want to call it, and then you hit the, the 80s where... Um, I mean, even still in the 70s, you know, Dances at the End of Time is, is more a time thing, but either the Jerry Cornelius novels, although Condition of Muzak puts a slightly different slant on it because that has its own type of explanation. But if you're reading something like A Cure for Cancer, Jerry and all of, all of the other characters in those books change every 30 pages, almost. And they're alternate versions of themselves numerous times over the course of the book. And I think the great thing about Mocock at the time, he was, he was just playing with the form, wasn't he? Yeah. It, was, it was just his playground. It was it was a combination of things. He was recycling himself because it paid well and because his, his books went well and sold well and he was knocking them out at a phenomenal rate. But also it was it was a playground. So I think what this really, really gives you as a reader is such a rich playground of your own as a reader to actually delve into and think, how does all of this work? That's kind of fun you, reading this too. I just there are numerous yeah. times I just stop to think like, well, wait a minute, is this is this all connected? I feel like that meme of uh, Charlie from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia with all the little lines connected behind yeah. him, just like I'm trying to comprehend the multiverse. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I can remember doing this in in the eighties when I was tracking all these things down. Uh, but I think the answer to your question is it's, it's all of those things and more. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the great thing is, you, you can read them and you can you can take them in the way you want to take them, and it works. Yeah, that totally does. Mm, I think that's lovely. So, the move on from these Tanalon Larkers, who were uh, who are a whole lot of fun, but at least they're good hosts. Yeah. But with you know, we haven't met the Grey Lords yet. Good lord. Oh my so, god. <laughs> we've got we've got one more stop before the Grey Lords. And they go through the next gate, and it says, Nothing shone in the grey light sky. Nothing moved. Nothing marred the grey. Nothing interrupted the bleak grey plain stretching on all sides of them forever. There was no horizon. It was a bright, clean wasteland. But there was a sense about the air. A presence of something past. Something which had gone, but left a faint aura of its passing. What dangers could be here? said Rakia, shuddering. Here where there is nothing. The danger of the loneliest madness, Lamsa replied. Their voices were swallowed in the grey expanse. When the earth was very young, Lamsar continued, his words trailing away across the wilderness. Things were like this, but there were seas. There were seas. Here there is nothing. You are wrong, Rikia said with a faint smile. I have thought, here there is law. That is true, but what is law without something to decide between? Here is law bereft of justice. They walked on, all about them an air of something intangible, that had once been tangible. On they walked through this barren world, of absolute law and it's brilliant because law absolute law is stagnance and wasteland and nothingness it's brilliant. total bleak oppression yeah yeah it's it's really really brilliant i love this entire journey through this world that they go on yeah and i'm going to pose a question to you shortly sure because because the meat a man it says Rakia spied something, something that flickered, faded, appeared again. And that as they neared it, they saw it was a man. His great head was noble, firm, and his body was massively built. But the face was twisted in a tortured frown, and he did not see them as they approached him. They stopped before him and Lamsar coughed to attract his attention. He turned that great head and regarded them, abstractedly. 
the frown clearing at length to be replaced by a calmer, thoughtful expression. Who are you? asked Rakir. The man sighed. Not yet, he said. Not yet, it seems. More phantoms. Are we the phantoms? smiled Rakir. That begins to be more your own nature. He watched as the man began slowly to fade again, his form less definite, melting. The body seemed to make a great heave, like a salmon attempting to leap a dam. Then it was back again, in a more solid form. I had thought myself rid of all that was superfluous, save my own obstinate shape, the man said tiredly. But here is something back again. Is my reason failing? Is my logic no longer what it was? Do not fear, said Rakir. We are material beings. That is what I had feared. For an eternity I have been stripping away the layers of unreality which obscure the truth. I have almost succeeded in the final act, and now you begin to creep back. My mind is not what it was, I think. Perhaps you worry, lest we do not exist, Lamsar said slowly, with a clever smile. This goes on for quite a while, and they have a, a conversation about the state of absolute nothingness, about the state of law. Nothingness is the law. Nothingness is, is the objective of the law. Law is the way to its ultimate state, the state of non-being. He tells them the way to the next gate, but they realise that this, this guy is actually in a state of some protracted existential distress, which I think is really beautiful. And Rakia puts him out of his misery. <laughs> Just shoots him with a fucking arrow. Just shoots Here, him with an arrow. You want to not exist, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it's quite brutal, but Rakia just seems to recognise that this guy is... is If there's, if there's a, a way of being like absolutely materially and existentially at the end of one's tether, this guy is way beyond that. Oh, yeah. But it occurred to me when I was reading it, is this Earl Orbeck? I, you know, that's actually an interesting question. Mm. Because, you know, at the end of Masters of Chaos, which is, of course, in the same... Or Master of Chaos, which is in the same book, right? He goes into chaos to wade through and basically it's i guess yeah like it's sort of implied that he he kind of shapes the world because he's at yeah. he's in well what is it uh, michelle's tower that's right right and which is at the edge of existence and existence i believe it's described in that story is just yeah this like kind of like flat plane which has an end it has an end and then but beyond that is just this you know formless shifting multicolored trippy ass void of chaos right so he goes in there and he basically you know is implied that he he creates some sort of reality and this could be him at the end of all things and as we find then the end of his life where he's he's so sickened by all the chaos that he's been waiting through for apparently you know unending centuries Hmm. that he then compartmentalizes and brings order to every bit of existence until it's all shriveled down into this weird mass of gray i i pictured like a cube <laughs> just yeah. because it seemed like a very orange shape and yeah. uh, just floating in a gray expanse and here he is finally he's just about brought order to all the chaos and all reality and he's you know basically gone completely insane almost like a like a fascist form of buddhism seeking non-existence as the ultimate yeah. answer right yeah. which i thought was really cool yeah. Uh, <laughs> and yeah and he's just trying to basically he's the thing that's containing everything in this um plane of pure law yeah it's so trippy so cool yeah. 
Yeah. Because, you know, I think it, there's a suggestion that he creates the Young Kingdoms, and, and we know that before Elric has Stormbringer, he has Arbeck's sword. Yeah. You know, and obviously that's written in the 70s. Elric and Malinibane is written in the 70s. Um, so the Young Kingdoms is created because he kind of wants to impose order and chaos, but is is the ultimate suppression of chaos, like the very, very end of his journey, where he's just kind of going down this, he's, he's just, he's in his lane, and he's in his lane right to the very end, and this is where he ends up, and he just he just runs out of road, and Rekia puts one in him. <laughs> and says, you know what? Unceremoniously. Fair, fair play to you, mate. Right. Um, I'll put an arrow in you, and you can cease to exist. Actually, Rekia seems to kind of get a little bit impatient with him. The figure says, if a gate existed, and it does not, it would have been inside the mountain close to what was once called the Sea of Peace. And where was that? Rakia asked, conscious now of their terrible predicament. There were no landmarks, no sun, no stars, nothing by which they could determine direction. Close to the mountain of severity. Which way do you go? Lamsar inquired of the man. Out, beyond, to nowhere. And where, if you succeed in your object... I'm assuming that's probably, should that be objective? Will we be consigned? To some other nowhere, I cannot truthfully answer, but since you have never existed in reality, therefore you can go on to no non-reality. Only I am real, and I do not exist. We're getting nowhere, (laughs) said Rakir with a smirk, which changed to a frown as he realised his predicament. It is only my mind which holds the non-reality at bay, the man said, and I must concentrate or else it will all come flooding back, and I will have to start from the beginning again. In the beginning, there was everything. Chaos. I created nothing. With resignation, Rakia strung his bow, fitted an arrow to the string and aimed at the frowning man. You wish for non-being, he said. I have told you so. Rakia's arrow pierced his heart. His body faded, became solid and slumped to the grass as mountains, forests and rivers appeared around him. It was still a peaceful, well-ordered world and Rakia and Lamsa, as they strode on in search of the mountain of severity, savoured it. So yeah, I, I do have a sense that that is prob- probably Elorbeck, but Rakia rather brutally performs some euthanasia, <laughs> puts him out of his misery, and uh, they do find the mountain of severity, and they go through the last gateway and into the domain of the Grey Lords. Oh, the Grey Lords! The Grey Lords. They're, they're not a whole barrel of fun. The Grey Lords. No, although. they're pretty insufferable, mm. <laughs> as it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we we do get a little uh, flashback, to, well not a flashback. We we cut back across as well to um, to Tanalan. I'll get to that in a second. But there's a really nice description of the um, the realm of the Grey Lords. Trees like stiffened spiderwebs, blue pools, shallow, shining water, and graceful rocks. Pastel yellow horizons tinted with red, orange, and deep blue. And they meet a girl. And it turns out, by some crazy coincidence, the girl, Sarana the Sorcerer, is Rakia's ex-squeeze. <laughs> and she she explains that this is the domain of the Grey Lords, and you serve chaos. Or does he say that to her? I can't remember. But she leads them, and there's some more really fantastic name conventions here. Oh, yeah. Sarana and Rakia have been lovers once in Yeshpotum Kalai, the unholy fortress where evil blossomed and was beautiful. Sarana, sorceress, adventurous, was without conscience, but had had high regard for the Red Archer since he had come to Yeshpotum Kalai one evening, covered in his own blood, survivor of a bizarre battle between the Knights of Tumbru and Loheb Bakra's Brigand Engineers. Brigand Engineers! That's just so ace! I love it. I love it. 
Brigand Engineers. Seven years ago that had been, and he'd heard of screams when the Blue Assassins had crept into the Unholy Fortress, pledged to murder evil makers. Even then he had been in the process of hurriedly leaving Yeshpotum Kalai, and had considered it unwise to investigate what was obviously a death scream. Now she was here, and if she was here, then it was for a strong reason and for her own convenience. On the other hand, it was in her interest to serve chaos, and he must be suspicious of her. Well, good job, because she's there entirely to dob them in to the Lords of Chaos, so she and, knows what their plans are. And what a guy this wreck here. Seems to have a bit of a uh, bit of a sociopathic streak. Here he's just shot some guy who was just minding his own business, trying to unmake reality, you know, as yep. you do. And uh, he just leaves his lover here to probably be assassinated. Well, I better not check that out. We all know it's probably a death screen. I'm just going to mosey on out of here. Yeah. <laughs> And he goes and, uh, it's it's like it's basically uh, Rakir and Serana just play a very brief game of chess, don't they? So how strategize each other? It's like which one can get their strategy in place first? So there's no question at all that is like they'd be so Serana, uh, could you please fuck off or um, let's have a fight so you don't fuck this up so we lose Tanel? And no, it's just like well she's here and uh, it's got history with her, so it's just something they're going to have to negotiate the way through as part of the landscape. Yep. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> we we do get a little cut across back to uh, back to Tanalon, and this is where we get one of our chief differences. Mm. So it says, in a different dimension of the earth, the huge horde careered across the grasslands of the north, screaming and singing behind the black armored horseman, their leader. Nearer and nearer they came to lonely Tanalon, their motley weapons shining through the evening mists, like a boiling tidal wave of insensate flesh. The mob drove on, hysterical with hate for Tanalon, which Najan had placed in their thin hearts. Thieves, murderers, jackals, scavengers, a scrawny horde, but huge. And in Tanalon, the warriors were grim faced as their outriders and scouts flowed into the city with messages and estimates of the Begaramis' strength. So Brute and Co. are all there, waiting for the tide to hit. And Brute calls a messenger. The messenger gasped. I asked Karlak for aid, but as we supposed, they had never heard of Tanalon, and suspected that I was an emissary from the beggar army sent to lead their few forces into a trap. I pleaded with the senators, but they would do nothing. Was not Elric there? He knows Tanalon. No, he was not there. There are rumours that he was killed in a great sea battle between the trader princes of the Purple Ports and the Lormerian Confederation. Oh, that the well. fleets met off Sorcerer's Isle near the Yellow Coast and that the trader princes smashed the strength of Lormir, slaying Elric in the process. There's another rumour which says that he was badly wounded and now lies among the ruins of Imria, his own city, which he himself destroyed. But all I know is that Zarazenia, his princess, mourns him for dead and we'll get no help from Elric or from Karlak in Elric's name. Wow. S- ah. Yeah, so, two really big differences there in the timeline, huh? Okay. Yeah. So, if we scoot back to the Golanx edition, the messenger gasped. I asked Karlak for aid, but, as we suppose, they've never heard of Tanalon and suspected that I was an emissary from the beggar army sent to lead their few forces into a trap. I pleaded with the senators, but they would do nothing. Was not Elric there? He knows Tanalon. No, he was not there. There is a rumour which says that he himself fights chaos now. For the minions of Chaos captured his wife Zarazenia and he rides in pursuit of them. Chaos, it seems, gains strength everywhere in our realm. Mm. Mm. So, it appears that that changed in the 70s when he wrote Burn of the Black Sword. 
because this time-wise, at the time when he wrote this in 1962, those stories didn't exist. So he's like, well, where where does it sit time-wise? Does it sit shortly after the fall of Rimuria? Where does it sit? But of course, I can't remember. Which, is, it, is it the Flamebringers where Zarazenia gets captured by Chaos? Such a long time since I've read them and I'm only working my way through them. There is a story. Is it Theleb Karna kidnaps Zarazenia? Oh, boy. I believe so. It's been a long time since I read Stormbringer, but I do remember like the very start of Stormbringer, Zarazinia gets kidnapped by some crazy yeah. like beast men and Elric tries to kill him, but they they take off because at this point he's you know he's disregarded Stormbringer. I think yes. he attacks him with an axe, if I remember right. You know, it's a very, very different ineffective skinny guy with an axe trying to chop yeah. at he these beast men. Yeah, he up in his, in his in a basement, effectively, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> he's fed up a slaying his mates. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, fair enough, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, so that's really interesting. And the other thing, too, in your version, it says that his, his princess, Zarazinia, is waiting for him. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So th- this is, like, probably a first... No, because if this has come out after Stormbringer, Zarazenia must be in the first, the earliest story in Stormbringer. So yeah, it's just interesting how he constantly self-revises. Um, we've, we've talked on a previous episode, I think, about how, how some things were forced on him, like scout leader Reagan, Ronald Reagan, in The Warlord of the Air, gets revised to Egan so as not to upset American publishers. Oh man! <laughs> in the nineteen seventies, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the Panther edition of the Panther Omnibus edition of Wall Out of the Air that I've got was based on the American text. So I was really confused after reading the Ace Pocket Books edition from the yeah. late sixties, which was American, but I hadn't been fallen foul of you know a, an American editor at that point. You had gotcha. Scout Leader Ronald Reagan, and then I read the eighties <laughs> Panther edition, a UK edition. And it was Scout Leader Egan. I was thinking, what's this all about? Because surely they wouldn't, in a British publication, they wouldn't be worried about upsetting Reagan. But it just turns out in the 70s American editions, they had to change it, or he was asked to change it, and he agreed. And it just, that was the the manuscript that was used for the Panther edition. So, wow. Yeah, there you go. But this, this isn't. I've got to say, most of the revisions that you see, and another good example is, which we've talked about on a previous show, is the opening italic crawl of Elric's dreams in sorry Ericus's dreams in the eternal champion where the list of names it changes every 10 years to oh, yeah. our ad i recently picked up from jade design which is an absolutely fantastic source and resource for mococ stuff i've got lots of lovely mococ stuff from there but um they're published the 60th anniversary edition of the dream in city look at that wow yeah. Just like as a little chat book. Well, yeah. before we get back to, to Rescue Tanelon, fortunately, the Singing Citadel... Oh, no, it hasn't got the Dreaming City in it, has it? So you remember the, the description of Elric in the Dreaming City? I'll never forget it. Yeah. It was so bizarre. It just burned into my mind. Like, here's this guy, like, wearing this, like, green cape and this weird yeah. blue and white checkered uh, flannel doublet and just yeah. really looking bizarre clashing colors you know not a good sense of fashion Elric and have you got it to hand? at that point have you got it to hand in that edition that you got i do have it in this one let me just uh whip it out here right so dreaming city 11. on the third page of the dreaming city you get the description so El- elric presents himself 
at the fire where the the sea lords are all planning their their attack and a couple of them are grumbling about elric because they don't trust him and he arrives and he says such confidence gentlemen is warming to the heart there was irony in the baritone voice which came from the entrance to the hall the heads of the six sea lords jerked towards the doorway have you found that bit yeah, it says, such confidence, gentlemen, is warming to the heart. There is irony in the heavy voice, which came from the entrance to the hall. Yaris's confidence fled from him as he met the eyes of Elric of Melnibony. They were old eyes and a fine-featured, youthful face. Yaris shuddered, turned his back on Elric, preferring to look into the bright glare of the fire. Elric smiled warmly as Count Smurgan gripped his shoulder. There was a certain friendship between the two. He nodded condescendingly to the other four and walked with lithe grace toward the fire. Yara stood aside and let him pass. Elric was tall, broad-shouldered, and slim-hipped. He wore his long hair bunched and pinned at the nape of his neck and, for an obscure reason, affected the dress of a southern barbarian. He had long, knee-length boots of soft doe leather, a breastplate of strangely wrought silver, a jerkin of checkered blue and white linen, breeches of scarlet wool, and a cloak of rustling green velvet. At his hip rested his rune sword of black iron, the feared Stormbringer, forged by ancient and alien sorcery. His bizarre dress was tasteless and gaudy, did not match his sensitive face and long-fingered, almost delicate hands, yet he flaunted it since it emphasized the fact that he did not belong in any company, that he was an outsider and an outcast. But in reality, he had little need to wear such outlandish gear for his eyes and skin were enough to mark him. Yeah, so, 60th anniversary edition. Most of that is the same. So I'll start from Elric was tall, broad-shouldered and a slim hip. His body subtly muscled and lean. His ruby-red eyes were millennia-old in the bone-white face of a slender youth. A youth of extraordinary, faintly unhuman beauty with shoulder-length white hair held back from his face by a jet circlet featuring a blue Actorius. His bizarre dress was tasteless and gaudy and then it carries on. So all of that description of his clobber, the soft doe boots, the checkered jerkin, the cloak, the breastplate, all gone. Wow. All gone. All it is is tall, broad-shouldered, slim-hipped, subtly muscled and lean, ruby-red eyes, millennia-old, blah, 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 blah. It does go on to say his bizarre dress was tasteless and gaudy and did not match his sensitive face, but it's completely removed, that description of his clothes. Which I think is a real shame. That is. It was so... a real shame. They were so, indeed, outlandish and gaudy. And, you know... It really, really paints a picture. Now, maybe not the most uh, fashion-forward picture in the reader's mind. Definitely, yeah. when I read it, I was like, why is this guy dressed like an idiot? But, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? But, but, um, you know, w- w- when Loz and I covered The Dreaming City in our first proper episode, we did laugh about that description. And, and yeah. I think we commented that he was dressed like a Burke. But <laughs> this was part of the charm. Yeah. Because Mocock was writing this as a young man. And... We all dressed gaudily when we were young. I found it part of what made him identifiable. Yeah. You know? He's, he's, he's a young goon. You know, to, 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 to a large degree. As a young goon, taking shitloads of drugs and fucking everything up. That's right. You know what? Who does not identify with that? And the fact that he was <laughs> dressed like a tit also made him identifiable. <laughs> Because that's where I was. I was I was dressed like a tit, fucking things up and taking too many drugs when I was the <laughs> age, when when I was that age. You know, okay, I hadn't lost an empire and I wasn't going to war at sea and stuff like that. But it's what made Elric identifiable, and I think it's a real shame that that's been removed and changed. Yeah, that's you shame. know that's that's another thing too. I mean, kind of even getting to, you know, 
sort of comparing the stories to like the recent um, Glenat graphic novel adaptations. Mm. Um, they're all great and the art's beautiful and I've enjoyed them a lot, but it, it really kind of strips out that 60s psychedelia from yeah. the stories. And I think that just gives them such a really unique and cool identity. You know, but basically the cool thing about Elric is he sort of, along with Conan, you know, he basically continued and started off the sort of modern fascination with grim, dark fantasy and everything's yes. really depressing and dark. But the cool thing about Elric and also about Conan too, both of their worlds were very bright and colorful mm. and they were vibrant. They weren't these like washed out, let's take all the color out of the image, you know, sort of Game of Thrones style. Everything's just really cold and dark all the time, yeah. um, which is fine. But at a certain point, it all just starts to run together and look the same. Mm. It doesn't have a unique visual identity. And how, how, how often really do you want to keep looking at these washed out scenes? You know, I think it's, it's nice that these stories have that sort of injection of color. So when I'm reading these, yeah. these Glenat adaptations, I mean, I love the art, but it's just, it's so dark and it's so, you know, almost monochromatic at certain points, you know, it, it loses the, the gaudiness, that outlandishness. Yeah. I, I much prefer more like the P Craig Russell approach where everything is just colorful and vibrant yeah. and trippy. And so I, I think it really makes these stories stand out. And, mm. and and feel different and look different and it's fun it's more fun to imagine these things when you're reading them i think yeah but th those comic adaptations you're talking about I, lo I love the artwork it's beautiful artwork but it's not my elric no <laughs> you know yeah it's not it's, mine it's either. like that those adaptations are, and, and a similar thing happened with conan if you read the original robert e howard conan stories you're absolutely right they're colorful they're vibrant conan's intelligent he's smart he speaks multiple languages. He wears stripy pants. Yep. You know, all, all that stuff. But over the years, the cultural image of Conan ends up getting fueled by Frank Frazetta paintings, or Melvin, or whoever. Conan comics, where he's just wearing a fairy nappy and a, and a horned helmet. Don't get me wrong, I like the artists and I like the artwork that they do, but Conan just becoming a superhero figure who, wear, who dresses the same all the time, i.e. fairy nappy and a, and a horned helmet. Yeah. It, it poisons what Conan is. It does. So, so as a result, when years later, when you get adaptations of Conan, they're no longer really adaptations of Robert E. Howard Conan. They're adaptations no. of what Conan became in the yeah. public consciousness. What upsets me about this, not upsets me, disappoints me about this, is this. that seems what this is. And it seems what the, the Blondell comics are as well. Yeah. Is that their adaptations of The Dreaming City, etc., by people who think that Elric is the Bron paintings. Basically, yeah. You know? And, and, and that's a shame. It is. It simplifies it. It, it just kind of makes it, you know, much like the Conan theme. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's nice to give a character a widely recognized sort of visual identity, but what, what do you lose? Yeah. You lose the color. You lose you know, the, yeah. the richness of imagining all that stuff. And it just becomes yeah. this sort of, I don't know. I mean, yeah, basically you give them a uniform mm. and it becomes like another superhero in a comic. Mm. I mean, even at one point in, even at one point in the, uh, the, the recent Blondell, uh, adaptations, he's wearing this like weird, like skin tight, like almost spandex looking, I won't, I won't call it armor. Cause it, I guess mm. it's some like leather piece, but I'm just like, why does Elric look like he's like some kind of like sci-fi superhero? Yeah. 
you know, eh, you know, where's his gaudy red breeches and his blue and white check? Where's the color clash in this ridiculous getup? Yeah, you know, (laughs) where's his Jack Garn pixie hat? Yeah, and 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 sex and, and kinky boots. Yeah, yeah, give me some of that. Give me some. I know, I know, Mocock hated that, but I, I found, I found yeah. it at least visually interesting. And I really like Michael Whelan's art, but I think Michael Whelan probably contributed to a little bit of this as well, with him sometimes looking like he was wearing some kind of weird bondage gear or, or just you know a, a, a pair of pants. Um, or yeah. lacking a pair of pants Lack, for most of those. A, lacking a pair of pants, yeah, <laughs> underpants. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I suppose there's there's a, a, a personal beef I've got with this in that. When I got one of my Clint Langley commissions, I asked him to base one of his commissions on the description of Elric, and it's no longer there. No, <laughs> in the 60th anniversary edition. <laughs> so, so Clint actually did him in the silver breastplate and the soft doeskin boots and the checked breeks and all that business. And uh, yeah, oh man. Anyway, you can't have everything, can you? But yeah, well. I, I understand Moorcock's revisionism and, try, and trying to kind of align everything and keep everything close together. But that that felt like a really quite arbitrary change. Unnecessary. Yeah. Does 80-year-old Mocock really look back on that and think, oh, well, he wasn't very cool in the Dreaming City. I'd better rewrite his, his, his gaudy dress. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Mike. Yeah, but I'm not happy with that one. Anyway, <laughs> went off on a, another tangent there, didn't we? There so, we go. The Grey Lords. The Grey Lords. <laughs> back to the story in hand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, the Grey Lords... Rakir and Lamsar bowed down before three small men who sat in a tent, but one of them said impatiently, Do not humble yourselves before us, friends. We who are humbler than any. So they straightened <laughs> their backs and waited to be further addressed. The Grey Lords assumed humility, but this, it seemed, was their greatest ostentation, for it was a pride that they had. Rakir realised that he would need to use subtle flattery, and was not sure that he could, for he was a warrior, not a courtier or a diplomat. Lamsar too realised the situation, and he said, in our pride, lords, we have come to learn the simpler truths, which are only truths, the truths which you can teach us. The speaker gave us a self-deprecating smile. So that's odd. There's quite a few blobs in this original text, because it seems at some point this was written as first person, perhaps? First person narrative? Interesting. Says, the speaker gave us a self-deprecating smile and replied. Oh, wow. Yeah. That slipped through, didn't it? Huh? Yeah. Truth is not for us to define, guest. We can but offer our incomplete thoughts. They might interest you, or help you to find your own truths. Indeed, that is so, Rakia said, not wholly sure what he was agreeing, but judging it best to agree. <laughs> and we wondered if you had any suggestions on a matter which concerns us. The protection of our city, Tanalon. We would not be so prideful as to interfere our own comment. What? We would not be so prideful as to interfere our own comments. <laughs> yeah. Okay, there are times when revision maybe is required. Here we go. And mine it says, we would not be so prideful as to interfere with our own comments. We are not mighty intellects, the speaker repeated blandly, and we have no confidence in our own decisions, for who knows <laughs> that they may be wrong and based on wrongly assessed information. <laughs> Indeed, said Lamsar, judging that he must flatter them with his own with their own assumed humility. I love that so much. Yeah. Um so yeah, I've just, just picked up. There are quite a few blobs in this edition. Interesting. From. Whereas you're, you're reading one with the same cover, but I'm guessing it must have been a later publication with corrected text. Oh, no, no, no. I I, I have this one, but ah, I'm actually reading from the uh, the, Del the Del Rey, Rey. Valentine Books uh, edition, okay. which, yeah, okay. seems to have been uh, edited 
<laughs> yeah. bit, it seems. Yeah, well, yeah. another interesting little point is that when you get to the end of the Mayflower edition, there are two sentences missing. Is that right? Yeah, which are there in I'm sure your version and the Galanx edition, but we'll we'll get we'll get to those bits. Okay. And I, I went on um, Multiverse Wikia, the Multiverse Wiki, to, to to look at this because I was I was fascinated by by these changes, and it didn't have anything to say about most of the text changes, but there is there is a section called Mistakes, and it says that the manuscript that formed the basis of the first Singing Citadel editions actually clipped off the last two sentences and the work restored until the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah, yeah. Um, wow. So there's a nice little bit here. It says, Rakir had hardly been able to follow the complexities of Lamsar's seemingly unsophisticated argument. <laughs> <laughs> but he saw that the Grey Lords were pleased. So Saran is in the corner. Smiling to herself, she's happy with herself that she's getting some some hardcore intel. Rakia, <laughs> the speaker conferred in a liquid speech to his fellows and finally said, "Rarely do we have the privilege to entertain such brave and intelligent men. How may our insignificant minds be put to your advantage?" Rakia realised quite suddenly and almost laughed that the Grey Lords were not very clever at all. Their flattery <laughs> had got the help they required. So yeah, the, the Grey Lords are just a bunch of like thick middle managers. <laughs> who, who kind of sit around a table and paraphrase each other and come up with nothing original. Yeah. Yeah. But with all the, uh, like, insufferability of, like, people who go, oh, no, 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 I, I'm i the humblest. I'm just the humblest. And, and, oh, no, I probably don't know because I'm just so humble. And they're just, just smug in this, like, assumed, this, like, assuming, like, attitude that they bring on that they, that they don't have this pride that other people do because they're prideful of that. I think it's, I think it's hilarious um, that these gray lords are so smug and like just totally insufferable. (laughs) Uh, They start talking options at this point, which is quite funny. uh, There are beetles in Khalif, said a gray lord who had not spoken before, which emit a peculiar venom. Beetles, lord? said Rakia. They are the size of mammoths, said the third lord, but can change their size, and change the size of their prey if it is too large for their gullets. As for that matter, the first speaker said, there is a chimera which dwells in mountains south of here. It can change its shape and contains hate for chaos since chaos bred it, and abandoned it with no real shape of its own. Then there are four brothers of Himaskal, who are endowed with sorcerous power, said the second lord, but the first interrupted him. Their magic is no good outside our own dimension, he said. I had thought, however, of reviving the blue wizard. Too dangerous and anywhere beyond our powers, said his companion. They continued to debate for a while, and Rakir and Lamsar said nothing, but waited. Eventually, the first speaker said, Here we go. Here we oh, go. Man. Pronunciation bingo. The boatmen of Xexenel <laughs> fucked it up on the first attempt. Yogo. <laughs> All right. The way that I said it is the boatmen of Zerlin. I just, I don't know, I gave it kind of like, almost like a French, just sort of like, just we're just going to make some of these letters silent yeah. and just kind of flow. I like your approach. So, I like your approach. Zerlin. I'm going to have one more go. The boatmen of Xerlin. Of ex- fuck's sake. The, <laughs> the boatmen of Xerlinese. The boatmen of Xerlinese. I think we should just go with yours. The boatmen of Zerlerenes, we have decided, will probably be best equipped to aid you in defence of Tanalon. You must go to the mountains of Zerlerenes and find their lake. A lake, said Lamsar, in a range of mountains. I see. No, said the Lord. Their lake lies above the mountains. We'll find something to take you there. 
perhaps they will aid you. So, so they're off to Zalerones to a lake above a mountain, which is interesting. Oh, yeah. Quick flashback to Tanalon. Beggarhard have arrived. Tomorrow they're going to march on Tanalon. And it says, The million beggars cackled their glee and wetted their scrawny lips. Not one of them asked why they'd marched so far. And this was because of Najan's power. So there's a million of them. A million sweaty beggars. And in Tanalon, Brutons asked the one-handed to discuss the nature of death in quiet, over-controlled tones. Both were filled with sadness, less for themselves than for Tanalon, soon to perish. Outside, a pitiful army tried to place a cordon around the town, but failed to fill the gaps between men. There were so few of them. Lights in the houses burned as if for the last time, and candles guttered moodily. Whilst Brutons asked the one-handed to be discussing the nature of death, Serana has been to Chaos Plain to report back to her chief. And then she comes back and it says, Serana, sweating as she always did after such an episode, returned to the plane occupied by the Grey Lords and discovered that Rakia, Lamsar and their guide were preparing to leave. Her Chaos Lord, Equor, has given her instructions to contact Narjan and tip him off as to what's going on. But this guide, ah, this guide, Timaras. Yes. Ah. Any reference to Timaras in the Coram books by any chance? You know, it is... The name rung a bell when I read this, but I couldn't quite place it. Mm. So, in one of the Coram books, Jerry refers to being called Timaras at some point, or someone refers to him as Timaras. Yes, okay. Yeah, mm. that's coming back to me now. Yeah, and, and he says that he journeyed with Rakia the Red Archer. He actually does say that in one of the one of the Coram books. Well, 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 look at yeah. that. So, even though Timaras barely gets a line... <laughs> <laughs> and he's just there to guide them. Yeah. He just says things like "not far," but it's a hard road. Uh, there's a re- there's there's a suggestion that he's actually a version of Jerry O'Connell. There so, we go. Yeah, all these interconnections. The fight off some giant owls. Then they go a little bit further. The fight off some giant fish, and then they go a little bit further. <laughs> um, Lamsar summons some uh, fire elementals to fight off the fish. And they get to Zelerines. Oh, I can say it now. There you say go. It now. It's tripping off the tongue. Zelerines. And uh, Timaras cups his hands about his mouth and calls through the still mountain air. Boatmen of Zelerines, freemen of the air, guests come with a request for aid. A black and bearded face appeared over the side of one of the red gold vessels. The man shielded his eyes against the rising sun and stared down at them. Then he disappeared again. So it turns out that these guys have sky boats. And to cut a very, very short story even shorter, to go, yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so sure, we'll go to war with you, us, why not? <laughs> yeah, well, you come and help us defend Tattle on, we go, yeah, all right. It's either that uh, or just fish in the sky and you kill all of our fish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we've got 20 or 30 ships, and uh, we cut back to Tanalon, and sadly, some of our old warriors don't see it through the other side. So they're having a, a hardcore scrap with the beggars. Some nice battle battle description, as usual, which Mocock's always good at. He says, Brute rose in his saddle, and there were tears flowing down his face and glistening in his beard. His huge war axe was in one gauntleted hand, and the other held a spiked mace across the saddle before him. Zas the one-handed gripped the long and heavy broadsword with its pommel of a rampant lion pointed downwards. This blade had won him a crown in Andlemain but he doubted whether it would successfully defend his peace in Tanalon. Beside him stood Eurok of Nieva, pale-faced but angry, as he watched the ragged horde's implacable approach. Then, yelling, 
The beggars met with the warriors of Tanalorn, and although greatly outnumbered, the warriors fought desperately for they were defending more than life or love. They were defending that which had told them of a reason for living. Najan sat his horse aside from the battle, Sorana next to him, for Najan could take no active part in the battle, could only watch, and if necessary use magic to aid his human pawns or defend his person. The warriors of Tanalorn incredibly held back the roaring beggar horde, their weapons drenched with blood, rising and falling in that sea of moon and flesh, flashing in the light of red dawn. Sweat now mingled with the salt tears in Brute's bristling beard, and with agility he leapt clear of his black horse as the screaming beast was cut from under him. The noble war cries of his forefathers sang on his breath, and although in his shame he had no business to use it, he let it roar from him as he slashed about him with his biting war axe and rending mace. But he fought hopelessly, for Rakir had not come, and Tanalon was soon to die. His one fierce consolation was that he would die with his city, his blood mingling with its ashes. Zas also acquitted himself very well before he died of a smashed skull. His old body twitched as trampling feet stumbled over it as the beggars made for Urok of Nieva. The gold pommel sword was still gripped in his single hand and his soul was fleeing for limbo as a Urok too was slain fighting. Then the ships of Zelerini suddenly materialised in the sky, and Brute, looking upward for an instant, knew that Rakir had come at last, though it might be too late. Lovely stuff. Oh, Lovely yeah. stuff. Couple of heroic deaths. Najan's prepared, he's got some Nali magic, which he casts in the sky, and instantly some of the Zelerini's boats come a cropper and guys fall screaming from the sky always a nice image oh, yeah. and it's but essentially the the boats of Zelerines are the the correct deus ex machina to save Tanalon. and <laughs> it's it's amusing that the Zelerines sailors scoop up beggars in massive nets yep <laughs> for reasons we don't really entirely understand and that appears to be their payment is that they get to scoop people up in nets and take them off to wherever they came from. Not entirely sure what they do. They eat them. Who knows? But victory, victory for Tanalon. Serana, she gets scooped up in a net as well. And I, I did, I did laugh at this because it's a bit fruity. And <laughs> uh, so he, he finds Serana in one of these nets. It says Rakia smiled quite softly and said, "Come here, Serana." She went to him and stood staring up at his bony hawk's face, her eyes wide. With a laugh, he picked her up and flung her over his shoulder. "Tanalon is safe," he shouted. "Come, Serana, you shall learn to love its peace with me." And he began to clamber down the trailing ladders that the boatmen had dropped over the side. And that's where that ends. Oh wow! Yeah, sentence is missing. Yeah, because your oh, wow. version continues, doesn't it? It does. Says, so he began to clamber down the trailing ladders that the boatman had dropped over the side. Lamsar waited for him below. I go now to my hermitage again. I thank you for your raid, said Rakir. Without it, Tanlorn would no longer exist. Tanlorn will always exist while men exist, said the hermit. It was not a city you defended today. It was an ideal. That is Tanlorn. And Lamsar smiled. Seems to be a pretty uh, important couple of sentences to be cut off. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It does, and um, but Multiverse Wiki gave us the answer. It, there you go. The, man, the manuscript just ran out, or perhaps the, it ran over to another page and someone lost the last page, and that was how you could read it for the first 10 years it was in print. Wow. Until that it got sucks. restored. <laughs> yeah. It just That's ends. Crazy, oh, come here. He basically pulls the cone in, throws the woman over his shoulder, <laughs> goes, climbs down the ladder, and the story's over. Boom. Yeah, that, that's what I thought. That was totally Conan. Yeah, crazy. But yeah. that is to rescue Tanalon. 
That is it. What and a it's journey. A great, it's a great story. And as usual, I think we've spent four times as long talking about it than it actually takes to read it. Because <laughs> it's, it's a fairly short story. But really, really cracking piece of early world building for the Young Kingdoms and, and, and for the world of Elric to show that there's kind of life oh, yeah. outside of, of the immediate orbit of Elric. Yeah, you really get a lot stuff. out of it. Yeah. Mm. I mean, yeah, not only... I mean, you, you get, you know... In the one realm, you get what might be ancient Melnibonean sorcerers, perhaps the ones who, you know, well, definitely the ones who created Tantalorn, whether yeah. they're Melnibonean or not, it's not necessarily clear, but it, it definitely gives you something to think about there. Um, there's also something that they imply that basically Tantalorn gets as much from its inhabitants as it gives them, basically. So it's almost like a symbiotic sort of relationship. So you could read into that that maybe Tantalorn actually is this enchanted place mm. and maybe it, it gives these broken down you know hopeless men something to strive for or it could just be more of a uh a symbolic sort of thing here you go yeah. they get the shelter that they wanted the peace that they sought all this time and could not find in the world um as chaotic and violent as it as it is outside of tantalorn mm. so you could you could kind of read it a number of ways uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's so much that you could really think about and unpack in the story. I mean, yeah, going back to the realm that was totally controlled by law, you know, possibly with, I mean, that was a great idea. I'd never even thought about that, but especially mm -hmm. being that it follows, you know, Master of Chaos in the, uh, this, um, 62 yeah. singing Citadel version, it definitely makes a lot of sense that that could just be him at the end. I love that idea. That's mm. going to be my head cannon from now on because it's just too cool not to be. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, me too. I think I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I really I really like this this early introduction to Tanalon because later on, especially in things like Quest for Tanalon, Tanalon all gets a little bit it's a bit contrived. You know, all the additional stuff about Tanalon existing in multiple planes. I, I like the idea of of Tanalon just being a place that that is there, but nobody knows it's there except the people who yeah. need to find it. <sighs> When we get to doing Quest for Tanalon at some point, it'll be interesting to revisit it because I had I had problems with that when I read it in the eighties. I, I yeah. didn't really like it. It was all too trite, you know. All the stuff at the end was far too trite for me. Uh, it, it really I, goes by very quickly how yeah. that resolves, and it's not exactly actually. I mean, yeah, kind of going back uh, to the song Tanalorn. I mean, it is kind of it's not exactly like an adaptation, but it's kind of it's hmm. definitely. You know, inspired by the idea of this, you know, mythical peaceful yeah. city, which you can, you know, find find peace and rest in. But then it's also sort of like I was kind of unhappy with the way that Erikose and Ermazad's reunion is basically just cut very short. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? In uh, in in quest for Tantalorn, um, after all this time, er, sorry, spoilers here. Erikose finally, you know, gets back and finally meets Ermazet again and they're in Tantalorn with Hawkmoon and yeah. you know um and you know the the end happens but you get you know you get maybe a paragraph of them actually reuniting and then boom the end happens I won't say exactly what happens but then that's it yeah um and that's I was like oh man so I kind of in that song lyrically I kind of drew from that and just kind of um they expanded upon that a little bit in my own head canon, um, yeah. which yeah. people will hear. <laughs> when Absolutely, they hear the song. stay tuned to the end of the episode because you'll right. hear that song. Yeah, and <laughs> I, I do get the sense that in the seventies, I, I, I think Moorcock just really didn't 
rate I think he had anything to say about Ericos, and I think that's a real shame. Because yeah. when we when we did the reread when Phil and I read it last year, I always thought it was one of the more simplistic ones. Um, but actually, textually, I think it's one of the deepest. There's so much going on. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. Like you can really you can read all the stuff and not really think about it. Have a great time, enjoy it as just a nice you know fantasy story. Yeah. But the yeah, I mean that is like the great thing about Michael Moorcock. He says so much in such as you say an economy yeah. of language that you know, and you start to pick apart what he's actually saying. There's a lot that you can really think about. And reading this story, I had to stop a number of times, and I was just thinking about concepts and thinking about things. You know, it's it's thought provoking material, yeah. which you know you can choose to go into if you want, or you can just power through and just get your nice entertaining story. And I think. That's 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 really like the brilliance of him as a writer, because yeah. there's so much depth in so little time, and I like that because I'm impatient. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, I've, I loved reading it, and I, I instantly went to the Galanx edition and just read the story again. So I just read it back, read, read the story back to back in two slightly different versions, and um, I I'm tempted to dig out the Millennium edition. Uh, the Air Lorbeck volume because it's interesting actually what we said about Air Lorbeck earlier on to rescue Tanalon is in the Air Lorbeck volume not the Elric volumes ah okay yeah. is it the last story there and that would really say something <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm, I can't actually get to the shelf at the moment but I'm going to dig it out and when I do the outro I think I'll um, I'll just pop a little bit of information there about What's the order in which it takes in El Arbeck? And I think I'll read it and see what see what the text like as well, and see if there are any changes in there. Because I know there are differences between, for, with some novels, there are differences between the Mayflower and Panther editions. Then there are differences between them and the Millennium editions. And there are differences between them and the Golanx editions. Gotcha. They, they seem to be the two major stages over the last thirty years where Mocock has revised his texts. And I think the Millennium editions use the same text as the Del Rey editions of the Elric stories. Gotcha. From memory, I'm sure I read that somewhere in one of the forewords or introductions to some of these numerous volumes. So yeah, I'm going to dig that out. But suddenly, after having that discussion about is that all El Arbeck, the fact that to rescue Tanalon is in the El Arbeck volume, not the Elric volumes, hmm, maybe, maybe a bit of supporting evidence. Who knows? Yeah. Anyway, so it was a real pleasure talking about to rescue Tanalon and Usurper of the Universe. But before we sign off, this Mayflower edition, one of the things I really, really loved about all these old books was the little previews of stories that you got at the of, of other books that you got at the end and I was just I was just having a quick look at them. And there's one on the second to last page. The Camp Five Shillings Gordon M. Williams. And it says the sizzling expose of the other side of service life by the author of The Man Who Had Power Over Women. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, and actually, the Gordon M. Williams was the author of The Siege of Trencher Farm, which went on to be filmed as Straw Dogs. Oh. Yeah. So I read this and I thought, again, having that conversation with Andrew Nett about pulp fiction and genre fiction, I read this and, and we talked about things like Sven Hassel as well. And I read this and I thought, oh. And it says, the camp is Arif Zedorf in post-war Germany. To it comes National Serviceman SAC Richie Brown. His patriotic illusions are soon shattered. Sex, booze, fighting, dangerous horseplay, an unvarying crudity of language are the order of the day. But Zedorf is at least a cushy camp, until the arrival of Martinet Group Captain House. 
then sadism and brutality take over, and eventually, violent death. The Camp is a frighteningly authentic novel about the side of RAF life not featured in the recruitment adverts. And one of the one of the reviews is not a book to buy your maiden aunt. But as soon as as soon as I read that, I thought I thought I'm going to have to look up a copy of the Mayflower edition. Well, I'm not going to give anything away, but look up you, Dave, and all our listeners. Look up the Mayflower edition of The Camp by Gordon M. Williams, because it is the most glorious example of 1970s photo cover. Gaudy cover art. It is fucking brilliant. Oh man. And I ordered one off eBay in perfect condition. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got one coming. <laughs> yeah. So look it up. It's brilliant. But anyway, on that Gordon M. Williams bombshell, thanks Dave for coming on once again and discussing To Rescue Tanalon and Usurper of the Universe out now out on February the 4th, but out by the time this episode comes out. <laughs> so I hope you'll come back again at some point in the future and we'll do another story. We'll just have to decide what it is. Hey, anytime. Absolutely. This is fun. Yeah, this is great to actually talk about the uh, story too. And yeah, I'm absolutely happy to come back uh, anytime you need an extra guest or anything like that. I mean, you ever want to do a Conan story? I've got them all. Uh, Dude. I just recently uh, completed my mini collection of Berkeley Putnam Conan hardcovers with the Carl Edward Wagner edited ones. I picked That's up two in a, picked up two in a secondhand shop in a place called Fleetwood just before nice. Christmas, and I got the third one off eBay for a pretty reasonable price. Cause some of them in good condition; they go for quite a few bob. So I am more than happy to do a Conan story because we did Tower of the Elephant with Phil for the first birthday episode that we did and I would quite happily do another Conan story. So let's pencil it in for a little bit further down the line. Yeah. Alright, brilliant. Good to talk to you again, Dave. Absolutely. Great for, uh, yeah, great to talk to you, man. Great being on and uh, look forward to hearing the episode. <laughs> oh, yeah. Massive thanks to Dave for joining me and Derry and Toms. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Dave, and I look forward to doing so again. Now, as we discussed, that Earl Orbeck Millennium Edition does indeed include To Rescue Tanalon as the final tale of the compilation, under the heading, A New Beginning. So we may not have been exactly hot with a scoop there, but it's still very cool to make the connection as we progress with our grand reread. Now, we've had a few chats with some of our patrons read their tastes in fantasy and sci-fi recently, and Lapsed Gamer said... I remember River of the Dancing Gods trilogy being influential on me when I was a kid. The school librarian, and also buyer and seller of books, lent me them. I only read them the once, and probably have rose-tinted glasses with regards to them, but I did name a magic sword after one of the hero's magic swords. Irving. Then there's obviously David Gemmell. I was certainly a Gemmell reader from mid-teens to mid-twenties when I got some WH Smith vouchers as a leaving present. I used them to branch out to Robin Hobb, and I've been an open reader ever since though I have reread Gemmel many times. Not so with others. Thank you, Laps Gamer. Gemmel is definitely coming down the track towards this show at some point, and as it happens, I got three really tidy Robin Hobb hardcovers from a charity shop a few years ago when we were down in the Peak District. I still haven't given them the try. I really must do so. We've got a new Juggador joined us, Toby White. And Toby said, I properly discovered Mocock when I was a student in 1993. I was visiting my mum, who was living in a commune in Brixton at the time. 
The bookshelf in the sitting room had a very dog-eared, cigarette-burned copy of the final programme, and, somewhat more remarkably, my experiences in the Third World War. I remember idly reading the first page of the final programme and being completely sucked into the world of that book. None of the commune residents knew who the books belonged to, so I adopted them. However, years before that, I remember my school library had an amazing book called Sci-Fi Now, containing loads of great stills from 70s science fiction films, including several from the final programme movie. So I think that's what inclined me to pick up the novel. Anyway, that started a very serious Jerry Cornelius obsession throughout my late teens and early twenties. Listening to your podcast this morning, I remember taking my girlfriend to the roof garden at Derry and Tom's in about 1995 and signing my name as J. Cornelius in the visitor's book. Kind of a mortifying thing to remember, although I suppose a small part of me wishes I still did things like that. I've been a very sporadic Mocock reader since then, and I am in no way a hardcore fan. In fact, I've not read any of the Elric or fantasy stuff. Read possible subjects to cover, it would be really interesting to hear an episode about the final programme movie, which I saw for the first time fairly recently. Also, also, have you ever read The Airtight Garage of Jerry Cornelius by Mobius? To be honest, I'm just looking forward to learning about aspects of Moorcock's work that I'm not already familiar with, so I'm very happy to have stumbled across your podcast. Please keep up the excellent work. Well, thanks for finding us, Toby, and not only that, thanks for coming along to support us. Now, I've heard of The Airtight Garage of Jerry Cornelius by Mobius, but I've never picked it up because they'll go for quite a few bob, but it has always been on my list as something to check out. And stay tuned to future shows for the final programme, the movie. Hussein has his homework, he's going to watch it, we're going to talk about it, and we might actually have a guest who's appeared previously to join us with that, so it'll be a triple header. Meanwhile, Mark Hebden on Twitter sent me a screen grab of a page from a pretty obscure chapbook edition of Distant Suns by Unicorn Publishing. The same unicorn that published The Jade Man's Eyes, briefly. It has a very cool full-page ad for a mail-order service called Time and Space, based on Prince's Avenue in Hull. They appear to have been based at Burgess, also of Prince's Ave, and trafficked in, and I quote, Ecology, Rock, Poetry, Occults, Fiction, Ologies, and Ossophies. As it happens, I lived around the corner from there from the late 70s to the late 80s, and carried on frequenting that neighbourhood for many years afterwards, and I have zero memory of it, so... It may well predate that, or it was just mail order only, and I just happened to miss it. If any fellow Hull denizens have any further info on them, please drop us a line and fill in the details. Fred on Twitter also tipped us off that there are dramatised full-cast Corum adaptations on Amazon that have been there since last year, so it'd be interesting to hear from anybody if they've heard any of those. In other news, Jim Kirkland's latest newsletter, Pursuit of the Pale Prince, has popped into my inbox and there's some great stuff in there as usual, including details on upcoming comic releases, and other multiverse-related news, including a plug for this podcast. Thanks for that, Jim. Much appreciated. He also updates the release date for those feverishly awaited Saga Press Elric editions that I've had on pre-order seemingly since 1979, but Volume 1 is due to drop on February the 15th, with 2 and 3 following in April and July. Jim also points out that if you're in the US, there's a Goodreads giveaway for Volume 1, so do get on his mailing list for these and many other race tips. Also, buy his book, Eurish's Hard, The Guide to Elric Collectibles. It's very cool. And it has one of my favourite Elric illustrations of recent years, Grace, in the cover. It's really beautiful. On the writing front, I've continued to chin-stroke over the last chapter of Volume 2 of the Journal of Gerard Arthur Connolly. A very dear friend of the show is reviewing the bulk of Volume 2 for me, and I've made the decision to expand Chapter 13 into two, possibly three chapters, so this second instalment will be significantly longer than the first. Meanwhile, Nan Soundtracks, aka My Old Mucker Wayne, has now produced two additional tracks for Volume 2 of his musical opus based upon the journal, and has given me a kick up the arse to get back on with my re-recording of vocals for the actual audio versions of the journal. So much going on, so little time to get on with it. Anyway, Sonus's new release is available now via sonusrocks.bandcamp.com or via Forbidden Records. 
There are cassette and CD options, as well as digital, and you can hear the closer, Tanalon, very shortly, as we close this show. Meanwhile though, massive thanks as ever to our patrons. First, those without tear. Anthony Piconti, Sebastian Weetabix, Tim Cardos, and Dave Dempster. Now, I should have shouted Dave out previously, and it's been remiss of me not to. Dave, I'm still wearing that Eternal Champion t-shirt, and I think it makes me the coolest kid in the class. Next, our Chaos Engineers. Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Dave Washman, Fred Keish, Jim Kirkland, John Lays, John Timothy Watt, Jules Lawrence, Mal Pertwee, Matt Saltz, Nelbert, Simon Perrins, and Tony Malazzo. And new to the good ship Don Blass, Rob, aka Menion, who you may remember from one of our Apogee episodes last year. Check out his podcast Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy on Anchor FM. Thanks for the support, Rob. Now, you chaos engineers are probably all relieved that Brute of Lashmar isn't around to bad you at the moment, recovering his ears from his defence of Tanalon. I did hear, though, that he traded some of his beard oil for one of the Zaleranese nets. No idea what he's got planned for that. And thanks, of course, to our Jugaderos. Alexander Harris, Craig Ledley, Dave Dalrymple, Ian Stead, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Miles reed Lobato, Graham, a.k.a. Open Sussex, more crabs to come in the future, Graham. Steve Round, Tom Murphy, and new to our groovy ranks, Toby White. And finally, eternal thanks to our patron demons. Joe Monty, Clarky the Cruel, Ed Scott, Gareth Wilson, Imria, Lapsed Gamer, Mortmain, Neil Burton, Norman Beresford, Randall Gatlin, and last, but never in the slightest least, Champion of Champions, Robert McMillan. Okay, this has been another long one, so enough of my voice. Stay tuned to hear Tanalon by Cernus. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at breakfastruins. You can email us at breakfastruins at outlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. We have our Patreon page too, and there are a few extra odds and sods on there. But in the meantime, take care, stay safe, and we will meet again soon. On the Moonbeam Rods. Drift.